Hi listeners, I am David Blakesley, and I am here to welcome you to episode 102 of the Criterion Reflections podcast. Uh, this is the episode dedicated to Andrei Tarkovsky's Solaris, a pretty important and uh, magisterial film. Well, aren't all Tarkovsky's films magisterial, right? It's a great word to associate with this brilliant uh, visionary director. Yeah, we'll be talking about Tarkovsky, we'll be talking about his work, and of course uh, focusing our, our conversation on Solaris. We also touch on the Steven Soderbergh remake from 2002. I read the novel, I have a few things to say about the source material from which both of those movies are derived, but really it's just a great opportunity for me to get together with a few friends and uh, dig into a really sumptuous uh, marvel of a film. Uh, it has been a few weeks in the making. My life has been very busy lately at work. Uh, there's been a lot of pressure, deadlines, projects, and the kind of stuff that, you know, takes a bit of energy to, to, to get done. Uh, and then when I'm not at work, I've been trying to get outside and just enjoy the beautiful season of the year that we're in. Uh, in Michigan, you got to prize those uh, warm days and nights when you got them because they're not always around so uh, the pace has definitely slowed down a little bit and it might continue that way for a while uh, I've got a backlog of other things that I want to work on and I'll explain a little bit more about what's coming up at the end of the episode um, almost three hours from now so sit back and listen and enjoy I think you're going to uh, dig the conversation especially if you're a fan of this film so thanks for listening in and off we go to Solaris. All right, let's get our conversation started. I am here with segment number one in this uh, special Solaris episode with my friends Trevor Barrett. Good morning, Trevor. Good morning, David. Yeah, thanks for joining me. And Derek Power. Derek, nice to have you back again. Thank you. Good morning. Yeah, it's been a while, Derek. I, I can't remember right offhand the last episode you were on. but uh, uh, Short Films of 1971. Right. So this is your season uh, four debut. So welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, yeah, just definitely uh, eager to get into this film. This is a really important work. Uh, Tarkovsky is kind of a man of the moment with the recent release of Mirror by the Criterion Collection just this week, as a matter of fact. And, of course, he is one of those kind of high priests of the art house cinema scene. Um, seems to be more prominent and respected and revered these days as much as he ever has been uh, by people in this circle. So uh, let's just go ahead and get right into, uh, you, you know, your interest. I mean, obviously, every guest on these podcasts is a volunteer. They, they show up because they want to talk about this film. So... Derek, let me just give you the first crack at it. What was your basic uh, relationship with the films of Tarkovsky and what drew you to want to join me to talk about Solaris? Well, actually, actually um, what's what's funny is that my high school senior prom date, uh, who was from Russia, um, su suggested to me that I get into Tarkovsky. They're just in talking with each other, she figured out that, you know, I think this guy will like this director and his film. So... Hmm. It was so it was it was a name that I kept in mind. And then sure enough. And so this was 20 years ago. So a year later, Criterion first issued out Solaris on DVD. So it was 
there was no hesitation for me to get it. It was actually one of my earliest Criterion purchases, and I just, I just loved the film. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just, it was, it was really great, and it was, it was part of my general deep dive into art house cinema, European cinema, international cinema. So it's, it's in a way it's kind of a, and then of course the Criterion collection. So it is kind of a interesting cinematic milestone for me, you know, this, this film. And uh, as I got more into Tarkovsky and, and the next film of his I got was Andrei Rublev. And I loved it even more because mm-hmm. of just the subject matter and the themes that, that evoked as well. And so Tarkovsky has been for me personally, like one of my favorite directors and kind of people that I keep in mind as far as what cinema could be, what, what cinema is and what aspires to be and and all those things, much in the same way that I think of Stanley Kubrick as a cinematic father figure and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, several other directors that I highly admire and respect. So. so, so you've seen all of the Tarkovsky films, I would assume, or the only ones I haven't seen are Nostalgia and The Sacrifice. Ah, the two um, non-Criterion but, titles. Yeah, the two non-Criterion <laughs> ones. But yeah. everyone, in fact, I saw Stalker a couple of years ago when it when after it, its restoration um, with uh, Matthew Geister. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the Brattle Theater. Oh, cool! Uh, we, we saw we saw that together, and so that was and that was actually the first time that I'd seen Stalker because I was because Tarkovsky with with audiovisual presentation. I know it's been very very rocky, like in mm-hmm. the in the early days, but now I think thankfully more recently it's been all been rectified. With you mentioned the the mirror release coming out, so um, I think I think visual for a director that's hailed for his visuals, you really want to make sure the visuals are top tier. So uh, I'm glad that we're getting restorations and presentations that really live up to the image and really do the film's justice. So then they can be appreciated in all of its glory. Yeah, absolutely. It is great to get those, uh, you know, nice high resolution images, all the, the visual power that, uh, that he's able to pack into the frame. So excellent. Well, there's a lot of seeds for uh, where the conversation will go and what you've just said, Derek, but let's go ahead and get Trevor's take. Uh, Trevor, I know you're a Tarkovsky fan. We've discussed that a little bit here and there, but uh, tell me just a little bit about your relationship with the films of Tarkovsky and, and your interest in Solaris. Oh, okay. Yeah. I am a big uh, Tarkovsky fan um, and really just wanted to join this because this film in particular, I find eminently rewatchable. Every time that I watch it, there's something new that stands up and presents itself as, you know, how did you miss this last time? This is one of the most important <laughs> things of the whole yeah. film. And, and it's just so fun to dig into a favorite film with other people and get their insights, especially something so enigmatic and something that so philosophical that just seems to to call for various articulations of, uh, of it to, to help you understand it with a little bit more clarity. Uh, but yeah, my, my uh, relationship with Arkoski probably started with Solaris um, with an old Criterion uh, release <laughs> um, mm-hmm. many, many years ago. I can't remember if I watched it first or Stalker, but definitely these were the two first ones and just loved them, didn't understand very much of what was going on, but still felt pulled, you know, something deep, uh, some some deeper connection there that made me want to continue to explore. It wasn't, it wasn't so 
enigmatic that I didn't feel a, a deep attraction and almost almost reverence. Uh, maybe that's the wrong word because I'm not trying to revere mm. uh, Tarkovsky as a human being or anything like that, but I just feel like he, he struck some things here that go pretty deep for me and are, are pretty resounding in, in ways that are very meaningful and very personal and uh, in some ways very hopeful. And other times I watch the films and I go, I might, I might be just reading my own <laughs> personal optimism into some of this. But, <laughs> but it's so fun to, to get together and, and chat about a favorite filmmaker. I, um, a few years ago when, when Stalker was released, Scott and I and I did an episode of Criterion Cast on it. And I thought that was just so enriching um, for me personally to hear his thoughts and then be forced to talk about it, forced to say some, <laughs> some things and not just sense them in my mind, but get them out there, you know, deal with, deal with the, what I'm going through. Uh, I'm not too much. Unlike uh, what happens to Kelvin, Chris Kelvin in this film, when Solaris forces him to contend with, the deep recesses of his mind. So hopefully it won't go quite as dark today. <laughs> for us, but, uh, Put the liquid oxygen down. Right. Right. <laughs> I'm looking forward uh, to the, to the, uh, yeah. the experience. Well, absolutely. That's so cool. Um, I'll just really quickly give you my experience with Tarkovsky. I won't recap this in the other segments, but, uh, you know, I first saw Solaris as I think I've mentioned on a few other more recent episodes as one of those kind of midnight movie art house things. Maybe it might, it might not have been a midnight movie. It might've just been at one of those repertory theaters back in the early eighties. And, uh, I kind of approached it as a bit of a I, you know, I'll just have to admit it was kind of a stoner classic, or at least that was the approach I took, you know, this kind of commie 2001, you know, take and, and kind of this bizarre cosmic uh, replicant thing going on. This is probably right around the time that Blade Runner was coming out in theaters and I was reading a lot of Philip K. Dick. So I kind of, I kind of approached the film from that sort of, uh, kind of buzzed out mindset and so i enjoyed part of it other parts were sort of beyond me the the slow pace and the languorous long takes kind of you know i could sort of understand and of course this was in a you know this was projected on the screen so that was cool but it was a beat up print you know i don't think i got the same sense of visual clarity and and even like the, the the power of the sound the music the rumbles all of those production uh, features that uh, we'll be talking about probably in more detail. So I was impressed with the film, but I didn't fully get it, kind of similar to my first viewing at a young age of um, The Man Who Fell to Earth. You know, just a lot of stuff sort of sailed past me, but it made an impression. And then I watched it uh, some years later, maybe on VHS even before the, you know, maybe back in the late 80s or early 90s. And again, it was one of these, you know, subpar presentations. And I'm not sure I just had the patience to really dig in and stick with it. But it, it, and I I think I've just kind of come to see that Tarkovsky's films are something that you sort of have to build a relationship with and invest some time in. You know, like I've seen Stalker once, I've seen Mirror once, but I don't really feel like I've seen them because I sort of have to establish the foundation and then let the rewatch reveal the things that are sort of meant to speak most powerfully to me uh, later later on in time. So, um, And so this, I would say that even though I'd seen Solaris a couple times, and I think I, I, I 
worked my way through the Criterion DVD some years ago as well. This really was my first, you know, full-fledged immersion. And and I've gone gone pretty big on Solaris over the past week. I've listened to the audiobook of the Lem novel. I watched the Soderbergh Clooney remake. Um, and then I've watched the film uh, with the commentary track, all the special features. So I've really been like soaking my, my brain in Solaris, and I'm very relieved to finally be getting some of it out, <laughs> kind of like what Trevor was saying. It's good to finally speak these things rather than just uh, you know hold them inside and, and mull them over. So having said that, um, I had a fantastic experience with it. I was, again, just re-watching portions of the film this morning before we recorded, and I'll probably go back to it again just to freshen up uh, for the future uh, sessions that we've got planned. But, uh, you know, in, in unlike most of my episodes, I, I take a pretty freewheeling approach, but we did kind of structure this one a little bit more deliberately, and I just sketched out some themes, uh, sent the show notes to our guests, and I'm just going to invite you both to maybe just pick up wherever you want to go with either one of the themes or or just sort of a uh, you know, a particular point that uh, of interest that you kind of want to pursue and, and give you guys plenty of time to, to share your thoughts as I'll have other opportunities to speak my piece as well uh, as I record this segment and then the other ones with our other guests. But uh, Derek, I'll let you kind of tee it off. Where do you want to go in terms of analyzing Solaris? Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, where, where to start? Yeah, the um, banquet is spread before you. Where do you, what's the first dish? Uh, well, I, I was thinking about, like, I think in this recent go around, I was thinking about the uh, inherent spirituality of the film mm-hmm. and particularly the, the notion of redemption and repentance. And hmm. um, I can't, and it, it's, it's, it's kind of easy maybe for me to see like what happens with particularly with Kelvin and his relationship with Hari as a way of redeeming himself from his past and changing his attitudes because he does go through a, a a kind of evolution or, you know, a, a, a kind of mental and spiritual trajectory through the film where he makes some assertions and, and has, and in the process, I think strained relationships, but then he's had these other experiences that made him question or rethink or, or just kind of revisit some things that he's been holding on to, and and then realizing that maybe what I've been thinking or what I've been assuming was wrong, and it's been leading more harm than good. For instance, his father scolding him, saying you know that. that uh, the earth, everything in the earth is, is too fragile and, and the earth has gotten hardened to, to deal with people like you. Mm-hmm. And I think in with um, the encounter with the Solaris Ocean and, and having his guest be in the form of Hari, uh, he's he kind of remember he's re-remembering how to relate to humanity. And I think also in in how in his encounter with um uh, Satorius as well and just and kind of it's helping him to kind of get a sense of like what he really believes or what he what he really thinks about the world so so yeah so I, I see this as as for him a kind of like a, a redemptive path and and Hari is has is the vehicle for him to achieve a redemption hmm. 
Yeah, there is a lot of working out of relationships going on here. There's there's obviously hurts and pains from the past that uh, he's carried with him that have affected him, even as he's embarked on this supposedly objective scientific mission. I mean, he's a space psychologist uh, who's sent to this station to figure out what's the problem, what's going on here, why are people abandoning the project, and should we even keep it going? And so he does have a job, but it's like his personal history just sort of overwhelms everything. And he even gets confronted by Sartorius at one point. You're kind of a loafer. You're just sitting there in your bed thinking grand thoughts all day. But you got some work to do, man. What's going on, right? Uh, Trevor, what are your, some of your thoughts on this theme of repentance, redemption, reconciliation? Yeah, it's it's one that I, I struggle with uh, when I watch the film because on the one hand, it's genuine. He, he does go through this process. On the other hand, it's fake. These aren't the people who he affected. These aren't the people yeah. who um, he had these issues with during you know his time on Earth. His we're, we're talking spoilers, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, his 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 wife Hari, his real wife, is is dead by suicide, and he plays a bit of a. You know, maybe not a role in that, but at least um, he feels guilty. He was a part of of what led her to to that action, and he he knows that. Uh, we don't know all the details, but you know that's not the Hari that he is um, rekindling both a loving relationship with, but also someone that he is now strengthening um, through that guilt. You know, coming through it on the other end, and 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 trying to appreciate her for her own sacrifices for him as the film goes on. Um, similarly, and we'll get into this, I know later on, but with his father at the end, if you take it that that's him staying on Solaris, this is not the man that is back on earth that he had a fight with. And right before he left, you know, probably the last time they'll ever see each other. And they both likely knew that at the time, this is an illusion. And yet there's progress in Chris's own life, but to what end? You know, he's if it's if it's all progress just inside his mind and the the entities that he has got that redemption through, or the you know the the relationships he has strengthened are are not really real. And he might only be communicating with the uh, with Solaris itself. On his end, it may have yeah. no idea what it's doing to him or what it's, you know, it may just be playing movies to him, you know, from his mind. It's a strange little um, idea of, of working through uh, guilt and and remorse and and redeeming yourself. And, and it's it, again, I see it as extremely genuine. Um, mm. His moments with Hari um, are beautiful toward the, the end of their relationship in this film. It's just, it's, it's exceptional. And you see that inside of him. And I think that's what leads him to be able to have that redemptive moment with his father. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's hard to take him as true. I don't know. It, it, it's such a fun <laughs> um, little concept, yeah. but, but ultimately yeah. I, I choose to see him as someone who has progressed as someone who has uh, become stronger. I just wish that he were able to put that in action with, um, with the, the real people, but that maybe you know, an impossibility too at this point. They, Hari is dead, and his father probably is back on Earth, um, not for very long either. You know, so yeah. 
Well, it's kind of a very elaborate form of self-help, I guess. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you, you, you fly to another solar system and orbit a space station so that you can work out your inner angst. <laughs> well, that's why I do podcasting, I've told you. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are lots of really fascinating ideas about identity, about personality, uh, even about how um, Kelvin's memories of Hari um, are the sort of the seedbed that uh, Solaris, the, the planet, the ocean, has used to create this this new being. And and so the question is, is Hari an extension of Solaris? Is, is, it, is, is Solaris like planting this agent on the ship so that it can understand the minds of humanity? Uh, or or is, is Hari this truly independent creature that sort of bubbled up from the surface uh, and, and is growing into humanity? I, I mean, really, she is kind of given birth. I mean, you could even say in a not so, so much a sexual sense, but there's a there's a coupling between the, the human uh, Kelvin and the planet, the ocean Solaris, that creates a new being, a new life form, uh, an individual. Yeah. And and as Hari grows from her infancy, even though she appears as a full grown adult woman, a young woman, a beautiful woman, uh, which I think is very significant as far as explaining Kelvin's attraction to her, not only the, the, um, you know, the, the past problems that have were left unresolved when she took her life, but also the erotic attraction. I mean, she's you know, a very desirable young woman. He had a romantic uh, relationship with her. There were arguments, there were problems, but there's obviously still a, a strong attraction there. Uh, but as she grows over time, she becomes more human. She becomes more volitional. She becomes more uh, able to think for herself. And isn't that how we all start? I mean, we all start as babies. We're, we're all very indistinguishable other than the, you know, the, the particulars of our physical looks or appearances. But there's not a whole lot of personality there. Uh, you you got to grow into that. And then you become what we think of as a full-fledged person. So uh, we can't really fault Hari for not knowing who she is or, or only having partial, maybe imperfect, tainted memories. Uh, she's got a lot of learning to do, but it is, it's a, it's a fascinating source of speculation and there's so much speculation that can be played with in, in all of these ideas. Um, but yeah, let's move on to another, another thought. Trevor, you want to maybe pick a theme or a, a concept from the film that we can kind of dive into a bit? Um, I don't know if this is a concept or not, but I am curious about your takes on, on the development, you know, getting it, getting to the planet Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the scenes on earth that take place be- before we even yeah. get there, you know, how much time Tarkovsky spends yeah, on It's like earth. a full 40, 40 minute mm-hmm. prologue, uh, before you even get into space. And if you don't know what you're getting into, it's like, what in the world does this have to do with outer space? Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, that was yeah. my experience. I remember the, the way that I watched this was, and I've talked to you about a few films that have done this to me in the past, David where I sit down at night and think, I'll just watch this for a few minutes, get a sense of it. And then before I know it, I'm, I'm, I'm ripped into it. <laughs> Nearly I, three I, hours I, later. Yeah. Yeah. Really? <laughs> I remember this specific time. I was starting to get sleepy, you know, toward mm-hmm. the end of the earth scene. I remember just kind of sitting there being like, I won't be able to do this for too much longer. Um, 
I'll, I'll go to bed and, and, and revisit it. And then boom, there's the scene in the, in the vehicle, you know, the scene shot in Japan, the five minute uh, yeah. vehicle ride. City through of the, the future. Yeah. And I remember that waking me up. <laughs> yeah. It, it's really <laughs> calling my attention. Yeah. Well, that's a scene that has definitely gotten some criticism, uh, even back from the film's original release. Um, I think in the commentary track, they talk about, you know, to, to, you know, Soviet audiences, you know, you know, freeways with six lanes and triple overpasses and lights and tunnels and, and all of that might seem pretty futuristic and pretty far out. But even by the early seventies, that was just life in your typical big city, uh, at least in the West and in Japan and, and other parts of the world. So it, it doesn't necessarily convey the image of futurism that uh, we might be expecting, especially those of us watching, you know, how many years later with all the special effects and all the CGI and everything that we've become just casually accustomed to. Uh, it feels very incongruous in some ways, but it's really, I think it's a pretty invigorating scene. It's almost like a setup for a Kiana Scotsy in some ways. And, and I, I was things. thinking yeah. of that. I was mm-hmm. thinking of exactly that, that like, this is, this is a precursor to Kiana Scotsy and, 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 and in a way that like that film helped us to see ourselves in a new way. And I kind of take, and I, I try to imagine myself back into 1972 or so when they, this came out, I'm thinking, well, maybe this is the way to like, this is like a way of reflecting back on ourselves, a mirror, if you like, of mm-hmm. like, maybe the future is already mm-hmm. here or something. Yeah, I really yeah, like that how is... Philip Lopate puts that in his essay with the criterion where he says, why bother clothing the present world in sci-fi garb? when the estranging future has already arrived. And it, it's such <laughs> a great contrast with the, yeah. the, the images of the, the Kelvin home and the nature scene surrounding that with the beautiful reeds uh, waving in the water. Um, you know, it's, it's a beautiful, the rain that comes down and then you get into this, uh, this scene in, in these tunnels and, and winding roads and almost a maze and the sound design there. I mean, yes, does, the sound is really important. Yeah. 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 So it works. It works to feel very much in contrast with that world. And I, yeah, I, I, I do love it. It's such an interesting thing to say. I'm going to, I'm going to stick with this for five minutes. <laughs> I'm not just yeah. going to show it. I'm going to make the viewer contemplate it. I'm going to make the viewer contemplate what's come before. I'm going to give this some weight because of the time I'm spending with it and not allow it just to be something that pops up, you know, in, in, in an article, they, they have to, they're going to have to contend with this right now while they're watching it. What are, what are, what is going on here? And it, and it does, you know, I mean, I've lived in, I was in New York at the time I first watched this, these kinds of roads were no, no stranger to me, yet it still felt estranging, you know, the way that this is presented. So I didn't, well, yeah, I, it, I didn't take the criticism of this is not sci-fi enough, you know, that didn't, oh, yeah. that doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> and, and something that just occurred to me that the year prior to this, you had THX 1138 come out mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's very much set in the future. And yet, if you know the production history behind it, it used all kinds of various locations in San Francisco, including the then uh, about to be finished BART system. BART right. Tunnel system. Yep. Yeah. And so that that's an example of kind of using available elements to create a sci-fi world rather than just conjuring it uh, out of the blue. Well, on that note, let's talk a little bit about Tarkovsky's production values. I mean, obviously he's working in the Soviet Union, uh, 
limited budget, lots of government oversight and interference and kind of quibbling over what they can or cannot do. Even one of the observations about the the freeway scene, which was shot in Japan, is that maybe the length of time was used to justify the expense of a trip to Japan, you know, right. uh, because they had to get enough footage to, to make it worth worth their while. So they did that. But what, what do you think of, of just how Tarkovsky, you know, had to obviously cobble together, uh, you know, the best he could to, to achieve some of those visual effects. I mean, the space travel, you know, is, is pretty minimal. You know, you got some dots of light as to represent the stars. You've got a pretty static image with some lighting effects of the space station. Um, you know, we could talk about the planet and all of that as a sort of a separate thing and how Solaris is kind of personified. But I, I, I mean, I, I was pretty impressed actually overall by it, although you recognize there's there's a lot of sleight of hand going on there. But what are some of your thoughts just on how Tarkovsky used his limited means and, and you know, camera tricks, et cetera, to, to create this illusion of the future? I think it works. I think it's one of these situations where the limitations have provided something that actually becomes a little bit more timeless because of that. I mean, thinking back on how many science fiction shows from the 60s, 70s, 80s, even the last decade, that just don't look very good anymore because they tried, you know. So you, what you see is almost a, a time capsule of what we thought the future would look like, and it looks so passe, you know, like, boy, they miss this. But those freeways are still around, you know. It does mm-hmm. feel like it's a possible, uh, just the way the way things go. It doesn't feel so out there with space travel and and shoddy special effects. Um, it, it works, and even the production. Uh, I, I like the commentary track for pointing out, you know, a lot of the props that they have on Earth or in the books and the you know different things show up again on the space station itself. And then show up at the end of the film in the, you know, in the house again. That could have been a a limitation, like, oh, we just don't have enough to get a bunch of different props. But it really works for the themes of the the film as well. Somehow, the the doubling up of all of that just makes this more compelling. You know, it may have been a happy accident, but I, I kind of look at this and think, man, Tarkovsky was a pretty much a genius at saying, well, this is what we've got. Well, this is how it's going to tie into what I'm exploring in the film. And uh, so I, I'm kind of glad for those limitations and, and think that, you know, of course, you know, something like 2001 with its space travel is just iconic and does still work. But had he gone for something more flashy, this would probably feel, I don't know, maybe there'd be moments that are more trite, whereas I can watch this film and never get taken out of it because of this attempt to to make it make the future something that... Uh, tricks me into actually thinking it's the future. I kind of prefer his his approach to this. If he's not going all in on that and really has the budget, I think he used the limitations perfectly. Yeah. To kind of, to kind of dovetail on that, um, I think the the limitations worked more to his advantages because I think if he if he had given, let's assume that he was given unlimited resources to do to make a true Russian Soviet two thousand one a, a big spectacle. So much would have been focused just on the spectacle, and mm-hmm. and I think, and I think this, I, I think with the limitations and kind of working with what you have, you just you know this actually encourages me more to go into these kinds of directions. It, it opens more possibilities and allows me to explore these other ideas that I wouldn't have if it, if it all just would have been a big spectacle. So. 
and it's interesting you think about spectacle you think about uh war and peace as a as a as an example of soviet you know filmmaking going all out to compete with you know hollywood or whoever and it is it's an an, an incredible achievement uh but the, i think the soviet you know film system recognized with tarkovsky they have a very unique talent who's already gained international recognition and acclaim and yet he's kind of troublesome, <laughs> you know, he, he explores <laughs> spirituality and, and he doesn't make conventional, you know, crowd pleasing accessible films. And he doesn't really want to abide by the expectations of, you know, of socialist realism of, of a positive morale building conclusion at the end of every film, you know? So, uh, they, they have this kind of troublesome genius, I guess, on their hands. And so they want to give him the opportunity to express and, and do his art but without stirring up conflict at home. <laughs> and so they, they don't give him that massive budget. There are a lot of checks and balances uh, on, on his work, and, and that really continued all the way to the point where he had to finally go into exile. Uh, but yeah, uh, let's go ahead and, and talk a little bit more, uh, anything more about the, the earth scenes or that establishing opener, opening section of the film. There's obviously a lot of uh, you know the, the, the video presentation of Burton and, and his uh, accounting of what he discovered on his kind of fateful flight into the fog of Solaris, I think does give us a lot of the backstory that um, in in the novel, which is set only uh, on the space station, is provided sort of later on as the plot develops here. It kind of precedes um, the arrival and it opens up the questions of what Tarkovsky chose to retain and chose to change about the novel. But I don't know if we want to get into that quite yet or at all. I don't know. Have either of you read the novel at all? I have not. I, I, I have okay. not. Okay. So I will forego that conversation then and, <laughs> and, and let it go. But uh, it is an interesting bit of speculative, you know, classic science fiction, lots of philosophy of science, and, and I'll maybe have more to say about that at some other point in this episode. Um, but yeah, I, who, who wants to maybe kick I, off in a new direction here? If you don't mind, David. Um, yeah. You've got a big poster of 2001 that I can see right behind you. Yeah, that's right. You are my 2001 guru. I've listened to your podcasts that you've done on 2001. I've listened to your commentary track. um, And I I love your insights on 2001. And this would be my first opportunity to kind of pick your brain about the relationship between 2001 and Solaris. Mm-hmm. Which uh, I'll I'll put my cards on the table that I've 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 heard that that Tarkovsky watched it and thought well we're going to do something completely different, but I've also yeah. heard that that was maybe more of a, a marketing thing you know that maybe it, there's not so much of a rivalry there as uh, as, yeah. it, as it was, but at the same time I think there there are some you know these are two of my favorite films I don't I don't right. I don't denigrate either one of them or their relationship to each other. But I am curious now that, you know, we, with you diving in so thoroughly this week and knowing that you already have a, you know, a mind just uh, dripping with the uh, 2001 um, uh, insights and such to, to get some of your thoughts on, on that relationship and on what these two filmmakers were going for. I I'm choosing this cause you, you did put it in the show notes, yeah. but I'm doing it. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> that's all right. Your thoughts on I'm... it. <laughs> 
I think the two films have this kind of symbiotic relationship. I, or I guess you could say that Solaris has a symbiotic relationship with 2001. 2001 <laughs> was made, you know, without any awareness of Solaris as a future project. Uh, but, you know, they are both, you know, Arthur C. Clarke, Stanislav Lem, kind of two, you know, major figures within, you know, sci-fi fiction of that era. Uh, who provided material that great visionary directors adapted uh, while the world was in the midst of this space race. I mean, that's the other thing, too, is that in the world uh, in which 2001 and Solaris were both created, there was, I think, it probably felt more plausible then than it does now that mankind might be on the brink of of encountering alien intelligence or, or other types of life forms. And so yeah. this kind of fiction of saying, what are we going to do when we come into contact with another sentient being? Uh, there, there was a certain urgency to that problem that I think that was felt because of this sense of the progress of history. So anyways, but, to, you know, I, I could go on on a ramble <laughs> quite a bit there, <laughs> but, but in any case, um, so 2001 came out, um, tar it was a game changer. Tarkovsky saw it, had a reaction to it. I think he did want to create a science fiction story that was more warm, more human, more humanitarian, uh, maybe more compassionate, uh, and redemptive in its outlook, even though there's a lot of problems and there's a lot of unresolved issues within the story, the narrative arc of Solaris, it doesn't have that cold clinical feel that 2001 has, uh, and it doesn't necessarily, well, I mean, they both pose the problems of encounters with alternate intelligences, both in Hal, as well as in the encounter, uh, that Dave has at the end of the movie, Dave Bowman, when he lands on, you know, whatever part of Jupiter is able to house this construction that, that he finds himself in. But there are, there are some interesting visual similarities. I mean, there is that kind of hard cut from the earth into space in both films. You've got, you know, the, the kind of proto human throwing the bone up in the sky and then the, you know, the orbiting satellite. And then you've got, you know, uh, Kelvin with his kind of back to the camera, looking out over a landscape and then boom stars and you're approaching the spaceship. There's a, I think the scene of, of Kelvin when he's kind of recovering in his bed in that room full of mirrors, I think there's a pretty interesting sort of parallels with the final scenes of 2001 as we see, uh, you know, Bowman aging from one cut to the other, and even the multiple Haris and and you know the 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 kind of illusion of the the, the several women, uh, both uh, Kelvin's mother as well as his uh, you know resurrected wife, that has that same kind of messing with your mind aspect that that final scene in two thousand one has as well, where you know Bowman is walking from room to room and then everything sudden suddenly changes and shifts as he's moving through another sort of era of his of his human life so and i think there's also some interesting i think there's like a a sequence that sort of reminded me of the stargate some some lighting effects and some of that kind of hallucinatory stuff of course you've got a zero gravity moments in both films <laughs> where you know characters are floating around and there's this kind of you know, sensual, erotic type of aspect to that, you know, whether it's the woman picking up the pen in midair, the, the you know, stewardess or whatever to use the old terminology, or of course the, the grace and the beauty of, of Kelvin and Hari kind of embracing and floating for that 
you know, brief moment of zero gravity as the station shifts its orbit. I mean, there's something very rhapsodic about those types of moments. And so, yeah, I think, I think the two films, you know, similar length, you know, kind of a grandiosity uh, and, a, and an epic scale for both films. I think the, the comparisons mu- the are pretty also. inevitable. And the music, absolutely. It's not quite as, well, yeah, the, the Bach. Well, it's, both, it's both past, it's both past and forward thinking. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's a great observation. Go ahead, tell us more about your response well, so, to the music. So in Solaris, so in Solaris, uh, you have uh, Bach's uh, F minor choral prelude, and then mixed with um, uh, Ardmentev's electronic experimentations, mm-hmm. and then in 2001, it's all you know, it's it's all pre-recorded, but it's a mixture. Of, of course, you get um, you get Johann Strauss' Blue Danube, but you also get uh, a lot of pieces from uh, Ligeti. Yeah. And uh, you, you also get the game ballet suite from um, um, Kachaturian. And so so a mixture of classical, you know, you have classical and then modern classical in mm-hmm. 2001. So. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's, that's a excellent. Um, just kind of drawing out more of those parallels. So, yeah, that's my quick take on, on kind of how <laughs> the two films interrelate to each other there's probably more but that's what comes to mind at the moment well as i as i think about it when you're going through one of the things that stands out to me in solaris is and in fact in all of tarkovsky's work really is this deeply personal sense of individuals dreams and disappointments and yet they're they're imperfect striving um to to get better whether it's misguided or on the right track, you know, some, some are misguided and others are on the right track throughout his filmography. And I think that striving and that imperfection and that sense of progress uh, comes out in 2001 as well, just in maybe, maybe a more communal, you know, more humanity wide uh, sense, um, sometimes misguided, <laughs> sometimes just right <laughs> on track, you know, as technology advances and as, as the, the, um, people that we watch in that film continue to grow you know it's it's hard to say there's a lot of strong personalities i mean we, we know dave bowman um a little bit but there's not very many more individuals in 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 2001 that really you know we get that deep personal connection right. to um but i think that that's not in conflict with uh with solaris which does give us maybe more of the here's here's someone personally going through these um these stages in, in their own, you know, human uh, lifetime uh, stages of development. I mean, you and you brought up a great point that I had not thought of before. You can see this play out maybe in a little bit faster uh, uh, version in Hari herself, you know, coming out as a, you know, imperfect uh, <laughs> being, you know, can't, her clothing doesn't even, you know, quite, isn't right. even quite constructed correctly um, until she's fully capable of a, a selfless act. Um, for someone that I think she's come to love. I apologize mm-hmm. about my dog barking. Oh, that's um, okay. <laughs> well, you know, and even you mentioned her clothing and the fact that there's a cut in her sleeve and a needle mark. It's almost like, and, and I don't mean to be blasphemous here, but it's like, Christ resurrected with the wounds that killed him still visible, you know, the, the stigmata and all of that. Um, it's, it's like Solaris has recreated Hari and 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 Kelvin himself realizes: Is this a gift? Is this torture? Maybe it's both. And I think there's a that's another neither, fascinating, right? Or or neither. It could just or be neither. this. This is a, not a process, that we can, right? Uh, as an alien species, that we they may have 
we may just never be able to actually communicate in in a context that we can understand. They may right. they may be getting brain waves and re- reflecting them, um, mm-hmm. but there does seem to be. So there's something. no there's no motive or intention, but there but there may be. I mean, there could be, you yeah, because it's too you... it's too close to think that all of these people are almost being somewhat tortured by their remorse and their yes. guilt of the past to think that it's unintentional. <laughs> but still. yeah, it's. It has something to do with conscience, I think, is is one of the lines, you know, that that there's something that Solaris is picking up, this this lack of resolution, this this anxiety, this, uh, you know, this this angst that that uh, divides us. And, and again, it just I'm, I'm just winging it here, but Solaris is one complete organism, one kind of global brain. It may be looking with pity upon humanity that we're all of these fragmented, isolated individuals at war with each other. Maybe they're trying to, or Solaris is trying to give humanity a key to working out its problems you know, so that we could actually that, that's what get Hari along. Says. Yeah, that's yeah. what Hari says in, in the in the uh, in Snout's birthday. She, she says you're all human because you all argue with each other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and isn't that the human condition? This kind of division, this brokenness, this alienation, or this accusation that we hurl towards each other. I mean, we see it in our politics, our cultures, and it's not just an American thing. You know, it, it, this is global. This is this is historic. It goes back yep. millennia, and so. Um, you know, just that that whole idea about the nature of intelligence and identity. Uh, would it be preferable for humanity to be fused into some kind of global, you know, conscious organism of massive and full cooperation with each other? You know, I mean, and there are societies that I think are at least reputed to function more along those lines, more thinking of the collective rather than the individual. And in the West, in the United States, I think individualism is definitely kind of the exalted thing, although that's under some criti- critique these days as well, because we realize that, you know, hyper-individualism revo- results in a lot of, you know, injustice, a lot of suffering, a lot of oppression, but let's leave politics out of this. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I can take I it know, out of yeah. politics. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I know, you, again, I know you're going to ask us about the ending, but I'd never thought of it that way. Maybe we infected Solaris all of a sudden with these little well, individual islands. <laughs> well, and look at that. I mean, Solaris wasn't doing this messing with our memory stuff until we subjected it to this radioactive blast as a as an experiment, as a way of breaking through because the you know the premise here is that this space station has been orbiting the planet for years this is a huge project it's room for 85 scientists and it's been reduced to three now down to two um so the project itself is already on its last legs but in order to somehow achieve a kind of breakthrough they bombard it with radiation just a sort of what the hell let's see what happens type of a thing here (laughs) you know and it results in this you know backlash that now the humans the the few that are straggling behind they're having to deal with some pretty hard consequences another sort of allegory about humanity's blundering into exploitation and and uh Hmm. you know expanding its awareness but but creating new problems along the way remember hiroshima yeah yeah (laughs) right we've got this incredible ability right go ahead trevor Oh, sorry. Yeah, if we think of what happens at the very end too, where they they do another, you know, kind of uh, I don't I don't know exactly what the term would be, 
but they again shoot Kelvin's own, you know, brainwaves down to the planet. Encephalogram, yeah, right. Encephalogram, yeah. Yeah, in order to kind of help it understand, hey, this isn't working. But that's when the that's when the planet starts to develop little islands, <laughs> you know, for the yeah. ocean well, planet. Yeah, and, and it... Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Well, 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 it develops these islands, but it also gives the humans the ability to annihilate these guests so that whatever power mm-hmm. Solaris had to project and read our sleeping, dreaming thoughts, uh, now we can annihilate them with this annihilator device that's been created to destabilize the neutrino, the force field that holds the neutrinos together. So now we now Solaris's you know uh, reaction has been counteracted by a technological ability as they give Solaris the ability to read waking thoughts. So so this is not the subconscious. This is not those deeply buried aspects of the human mind. But this is the more intentional, volitional aspect of humanity. Saying, "Here's my plan. Here's my strategy. Here's my logic. Here's my you know advanced critical." reasoning faculties here and they give that to solaris and that changes the dynamics yet again meaning even the structure of the planet seems to change which is another kind of fascinating (laughs) uh mind-blowing concept itself maybe maybe for solaris the space station was like the the impending doom of the space baby. Oh no. Yeah. Here it comes. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe it's, it's the uh, arrival of, uh, you know, the, you know, the ship into the new world, you know, uh, you've got, you, you've got these invaders mm-hmm. that are coming and uh, you, you know, Solaris's life will never be the same. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, we can certainly play. I wonder if, was there ever a sequel to Solaris uh, written out? <laughs> Solaris two. <laughs> uh, well, I, we are we are kind of getting close to the end of our allotted time, so uh, let's talk about that final scene. I know, refer- you know Trevor, you've referenced it a couple times, but I'll give Derek a first shot. So, so the final scene um, is where it looks like we're kind of reprising the opening scenes we've we've got kelvin back at the house looking at the pond which is kind of frozen now there's a coating of ice over the surface um there are some other things happening there i'll let you describe whatever stands out to you but what is what do you make of this kind of final twist this is after hari has kind of committed a second suicide right she allowed herself to be annihilated she went to sartorius and said get get rid of me this is for kelvin's own good so so Kelvin is now a, a double widower from the same person, right? You could say. Right. And um, and that's another little twist. But uh, with her out of the picture, he's told, go back to Earth. And that's what we're led to believe when we first see, you know, the scene. But Derek, what do you think of that ending? And, and how do you kind of, you know, what's the interpretive key for you? Uh, so what stands out to me is, is when you do see Kelvin looking around at his father's, um, house and how it's, it's like earth, but of course it is. And you mentioned it's frozen. It it actually kind of looks black and muddy as well. Mm -hmm. And there's no, uh, there's no flow to it. In fact, the, um, 
the milfoil you see in the in the very first shot it flows really nicely but then the th- second time you see it again it doesn't have that graceful flow uh, like you saw in the first time so it it's mimicking earth but not it doesn't get it quite right and the other feature is that the rain goes inside the house which interestingly reminds me of the water coming from the shower there's there's a moment where Hari and Kelvin are looking into the mirror and then you mm-hmm. and then it heads over to a little bit of a shower rainfall so it kind of looks like that and so, it's not really obviously from the shower it's that there's kind of like this dripping water coming down but the yeah. shower makes sense yeah as an explanation yeah exactly and and actually um kind of dovetailing to what trevor brought up earlier um the fact that that kelvin is is uh reconciling to his father but yet he's doing it in solaris that did throw me off a bit but then in thinking about it i've kind of concluded that one it may be futile for him to go back to earth because by the time, he, and because we don't know how far uh, Solaris is in relation to earth. I mean, it or how the take, travel is, is managed. Like how exactly, do you get from? Yeah. So, so maybe by the time he gets to earth, um, his father had already died. So it would be kind of useless for him to go back to earth. And that maybe this is just like uh, redeeming or, or reconciling with Hari that the only way he could do it with Solaris Maybe he's thinking that the only way he can reconcile with his father is to also do it on Solaris. So that's why he stays. I think another reason why he may stay in Solaris is to help better understand what this thing is and maybe also use that to better understand himself. And finally, maybe he also accepts that maybe with what he knows, uh, he's better off not returning to Earth. That mm. that maybe if if... If part of what he realizes is that he's done more harm than good in in the past, that maybe the way to go forward is to be in this place. Like maybe this is where he should be. And, uh, you know, as uh, we were co- also tying with the, uh, the the bombarding with radiation and then getting a reaction, you the, the common definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different <laughs> result. Right. So maybe this is, maybe this is like, Hey, let's, let's try something differently. And then maybe this can help everyone. Maybe this can help ourselves. This can help Solaris. This can help the, the greater cosmos and, and all those things. So. Yeah. It's kind of like Kelvin has crossed a threshold. He really can't go back. And so he's just got to make the best of, the opportunity that sits before him. Interesting. And tying yeah. it with 2001, it is, mm-hmm. it is kind of like, well, just like Bowman crossing the, you know, going to Jupiter, crossing the Stargate and then, and then evolving to the star child. This is kind of Kelvin doing it in a more, you know, in a more spiritual way. Like he's, he's becoming mm-hmm. like he's, he's regaining his humanity and maybe even uh, improving it on, on a, on a deeper spiritual level. So. Well said, uh, Trevor. What do you? What's your take on that final scene? All right. So I, I never quite know how to say all of this. There's so many thoughts that swirl. <laughs> I feel like the surface of Solaris one. just, uh, you know, tempestuous <laughs> yep. and, just and bubbling forth. Yeah. Various islands, but I I love the ending. I love that it it does kind of pull the rug out from under you. You know, you think he might be going home and maybe helping fix up his relationship with his father. Um, he looks pleased to be back at first as he's walking there. I love that the, it, that the water, the pond, you know, is frozen over, um, and kind of got those gray tones. It feels like the hunters in the snow, the Bruegel painting that we see studied mm-hmm. in the, in the picture. Um, it feels more like that. It feels like a return. 
um, to a place that may be tired and uh, ready to, you know, but ready for some warmth. And uh, I, I love that that's what it is. And this is maybe a quick chance, and I won't go into deep here, but to talk about how much I really think that the actor, Donatus Bonionis, uh, he does such a fantastic job when he gets there and realizes, you, you know he's recognizing the imperfections. And you get a sense of weariness, maybe even a sense of fatigue on, on his face as he's looking at this. He's, you know, as he watches his father, he knows that's not his father. He knows it. But this is another second chance that he's being yeah. given and he accepts it. And I, I do love that. He, 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 he is realized, you know, it doesn't rain inside of your home. It rains outside your home, you know, as it was doing <laughs> yeah. back on earth, yeah. but it's raining in his home on his father who looks at him with a, a little bit of, um, you know, maybe some delight, uh, but there's, there's a lot going on in that look as well. And so, I just think it's a special moment of, of again, personal um, growth and personal redemption, uh, as imperfect as it as it may be. Um, but to be able to maybe heal some of these wounds where where you can't do it perfectly, it's that imperfect striving again. You just can't do it perfectly. You know, his father's likely not there, but somehow inside of him, he has come to a new stage. As, as Derek was saying just a, a few minutes ago, I I, I really. Uh, do uh, love that it goes goes here while still leaving that you know it's not it's not exactly perfect, and it may be that Solaris is still picking up on his remorse. You know, here's another conflicted um, relationship in his life. Is that is Solaris going to continue with that, or is it? Or is it trying to give him opportunities? Was it trying to give all of them opportunities um, yeah. to to come back and 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 grow? Um, it, Maybe it's getting there, you know, as you think of the 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 imperfection of the very first thing that the astronauts saw, you know, the four meter child, you know, that's that's not too realistic, um, but it probably still was a reflection of. In fact, I think we we get some of that information, you know, a reflection of of some trauma that has that mm-hmm. that stems from relationships, and maybe all of them are but they just can't deal with it in quite the same way that, uh, that Kelvin can. He's able to take some of these and heal internally, even if it can't retroactively heal uh, a real relationship. He, he himself individually, personally is, is going for something different, but I can't help with that final zoom away. Think to what end he seems stranded now in his own illusions yeah. and it seems mm-hmm. like, mm. Oh, he's done all yeah. of this, but to what? And if it's only going to benefit him, if within his mind, is that enough then? And I don't, uh, you know, <laughs> well, it's the question that we have to address with all of our unresolved griefs, especially with people who have passed on that we no longer have access to, whether that's through death or irreconcilable breakup of relationships. I mean, Tarkovsky, you know, it's mentioned in the commentary track, he had had a wife and child early in his life that he abandoned and pursued his artistic ambitions. And we've talked about that that trade-off. You know, Ingmar Bergman, another, I mean, I bring this up all the time about all the different broken relationships and the very real pain and anguish that all of that, you know, kind of personal upheavals created in the lives of real people while he was pursuing his art. And and I think whether it's pursuit of art or just the general condition of being a human, uh, 
we find ourselves, you know, with, with unresolved, you know, sadness and grief and loss. And we know that we've done things to other people that have been hurtful and that we cannot really take back. And, and, and so in the case of like a, a deceased relative, a parent, let's say, or, or, a, 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 a partner, a child, even, uh, we sometimes have to do that internal work of, of, forgiving them, forgiving ourselves and, and finding some kind of peace, even though that personal face-to-face reconciliation is now no longer a possibility. So in a sense, and I think, you know, the, the depiction of the film shows, you know, Kelvin on this island, on this massive planet as the only authentic person there. But in a certain sense, aren't we all sort of isolated within ourselves, mm-hmm. at least within the, uh, the limits of our own ego and our ability to comprehend the world around us? We're all kind of working out our issues. We just happen to be doing it alongside each other uh, on a level where we can communicate and have some shared understanding and, and, and the, a, a degree of relationship. But it's always going to be partial. It's always going to be flawed. And, and there's always going to be those things that are just never sufficiently said or communicated (laughs) so yeah to put it all in that cosmic context there all right well we are kind of coming close to the end of our hour but i do want to give you both a chance to say any one last thing or you know key point that maybe we didn't touch on so derek i'll let you go ahead and take the first swing at it final thoughts on solaris you you know it's it's funny that I, i i encountered this film for myself 20 years ago and in, in that 20 years, a lot has happened, obviously, but but it's still it's still amazing that this film is still this really deep iceberg. And I and I feel like that even just in an hour, we've only touched the surface. I mean, we yeah. can we can go on and on about <laughs> all the all the aspects of Solarius. So, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I, so here's to 20. Here's to 20 more. <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. And we'll give the other guys a few things to, to touch on as well. But I have really appreciated your insights, Derek. It's good to have you back on the show again. So thank you for your contributions today. And my uh, pleasure. Yeah. Trevor, what are what is your last kind of uh, zinger for Solaris you want to throw oh, our way. A zinger? Oh, dang, David. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I just gave my zinger. <laughs> well, you know, well, that's fine. I mean, if, if, if that was your piece, that that's okay. I, I but spent then, it. I yeah. spent, no, um, maybe, maybe I will end just by talking about how much, again, just to revisit what I talked about at the beginning, how much I love the films of Andre Tarkovsky. Um, Solaris is just deeply personal. Um to me, not because I'm going through the same things that Kelvin is going through, but because it, it opens up this, these ideas of, of guilt and trying to deal with, deal with that kind of stuff. I find it just, I I find it beautiful. Um, and I, I love Tarkovsky's uh, cinema, uh, for its capability of doing that. I, I, I hope that I'm around and able to talk with you about mirror here in a few years. And then, you know, <laughs> maybe in, in 20 years, you'll, you'll get to, to stalker in 79 or <laughs> because it just continues for me. You know, this, this stuff, yeah. it's, it, it's, I, I love Solaris as its own individual film. I love it as a body of work as well from, from a great filmmaker. It's, 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 it's unique. It's individual but it works so well in conjunction with others. So I guess if, if listeners aren't, haven't, um, haven't delved beyond Solaris, uh, do so, you know, it's very, very much worthwhile to grapple with this, uh, this filmmaker's, uh, work as a whole. 
Fantastic. Well, that's a very good note to end it on. Uh, thanks, guys, again for, for joining me this morning. Really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, we'll be back in just a minute to pick it up with Aaron and Brad. All right, here we are back with segment two of our uh, conversation about Andre Tarkovsky's Solaris, and I'm very happy to be joined by Brad McDermott and Aaron West. Uh, this is just kind of extending the all-star lineup that we have assembled for this conversation. So, Brad, let's just start with you. Uh, thank you, my friend. You have followed me on my journey from John Waters and Pink Flamingos to Andre Tarkovsky and Solaris. Uh, that's a brave pioneer move on, my, on your part. And I appreciate your accompaniment as we uh, traverse this epic quest. Uh, my, neck is a little, my neck's a little sore from that whiplash, but <laughs> I'm, it I'm really is good. quite a transition, you know. And the thing is, these, these movies were fil- were released like two or three days apart in March of 1972. So, there were definitely some strange things happening on the planet Earth back in uh, March of 72, but <laughs> uh, it's good to have you back, and I definitely look forward to hearing your uh, conversation and, and uh, comments about Andre Tarkovsky and Solaris, so thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me again. Oh, it's always a pleasure. And Aaron, it's been a while since you've been on the podcast here, but it's always great to connect with you. Uh Thank you for joining me and for carving some time out of your busy schedule to talk about Solaris. <laughs> yeah, I think, didn't we do uh, Murmur of the Heart together? Is that the last one? I, that might be, yeah. I haven't yeah, looked it up, so. but it's been a while. I mean, obviously, we we did an episode of Now uh, not too long ago, and, right, and I yeah. always appreciate my opportunities to to jam with you there. But uh, I really uh, am looking forward to hearing your thoughts about Solaris and Tarkovsky and all of that. And so, uh, you know, since we've already kind of laid a lot of the groundwork of the film in our previous segment, let's just get right back into it. Um, I'm going to ask Brad to get kick us off here. Tell us just a little bit about uh, your relationship with Tarkovsky, uh, your regard for his uh, films, his artistry, and any particular interest you have in Solaris itself. Yeah, sure. So um, I discovered Tarkovsky um, when I was in college. So in between my years in college, when I would come home, um, I was learning uh, through my days at Rotten Tomatoes, which is great because Aaron is here as well. And that's how we know each other is from our history in Rotten Tomatoes. Um, Learning about you know, the art film directors learning about this thing called the Criterion Collection. And I was renting back, this is still in the VHS sort of days, I was renting movies from not only the library, but there was this great um, art house uh, video store in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada, called Generation X. And I always took two buses to get there and two buses back. Um, and when you returned movies, it was the same. But they had stuff like this that you could just not find anywhere else. And so I had first seen Andre Rublev 
Um, and then I decided to sort of go from there. And I knew that uh, Solaris and Stalker were his sort of big one to uh, sci-fi films. So yeah, and then from there explored the rest of his his work. There's only seven movies, so it's not too difficult to to uh, to do that. But um, he left an impression on me, as he's done so many people, um, that he I just didn't know people could make movies this way, and and it was it was a revelation. It, it is so fascinating. I think this came out of the Soviet Union in the seventies, you know, and and as you get into Tarkovsky's, you know, backstory, his his career, his personal history, you just realize what an incredible, uh, you know, barricade of obstacles he had to work through just to get a movie made, and then to make them with such uh, you know artistic integrity and such a clear vision. Uh, it, it is really quite remarkable that these films even exist. I mean, films in general are always complicated productions, uh, but for him even to the bad ones. work his way, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that is really true. Uh, but for, for him to you know work through all of the bureaucracy and the censorship and the oversight and the subtle pressures and the overt, you know, pressures is, is, is quite amazing. Uh, and so, yeah, and, and he's certainly in the moment, like we, we've talked about in the previous segment. You know, Mirror just got released this week. Uh, Aaron, I think you've already dipped into the Mirror a little bit there. So tell me a little bit about what you have to say about Tarkovsky and, and this film. Sure. And, and really, I, I just watched the documentary that was part of Mirror. And um, and there's not not a lot of, I mean, there's a little bit of Solaris in, in it. Um, but but yeah, yeah, it's interesting that Brad and I have this shared history because we did start on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, yeah, I think I'm a little older than Brad, but um, but so I had a, a little head start. But it, it was around that time uh, that I was first uh, exposed to Tarkovsky, and that was also with Andre Rublev, and um, it blew me away. It, I'd never seen anything like it. Uh, yeah, of course, it's a it's a lengthy, you know, um, I wouldn't say impenetrable film, but, you know, Tarkovsky is known for challenging his, um, his audience. And, uh, and I was up for the occasion. So I, I still love that film. And, and my second, uh, Tarkovsky was, uh, Solaris probably around the same time. So I had not, um, really seen either of these until their, um, their recent criterion releases. I think uh, Rublev was still a couple of years ago. Uh, I, and of course I, so this this one I think was 2011, so uh, so it's been a while, but yeah, I, I think Tarkovsky is um, really well. One thing that that resonated from the documentary is uh, he said that he really didn't like his critics trying to interpret his films and um, and find stuff that he didn't imagine, and that uh, a lot of times they overcomplicated things. Uh, and I, I, of course, I saw that after rewatching Solaris and you know picking up on all the little. Um, tidbits that uh, that he drops in there, knowing also that we're going to do that that very thing. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think it's almost like it's almost hubris because the way he made films, you almost can't either. He doesn't reveal the motivations of many characters, you know, he, or maybe one character in this in this uh, example. But um, but yeah, no, I think he's you know he's challenging but he's really truly an artist and uncompromising you know i think that's why he fought the censors in soviet union and it's why he only had a few films um and really uh, you know making film probably killed him with stalker uh you know that yeah. that was where he um very likely 
you know, was exposed to um, radiation. So, yeah, no, he's a legend. I, I've, there's one film I've yet to see. I'm saving it, and that's Nostalgia. I don't know if you all have seen it, but uh, but everything else has been a, a big hit. I can't wait to watch Mirror again. I have yeah, seen Nostalgia. No. Okay. Well, yeah, we can we can talk a little bit about Tarkovsky's fuller career, but this was really a very pivotal film for him uh, and that he was kind of following up on the international acclaim that both Ivan's childhood and Andrei Rublev had, had uh, earned for him. Um, and, and again, as we commented earlier, you know, the USSR recognized they had a very talented, you know, genius filmmaker on their hands and wanted to, you know, to a certain extent, exploit that or to at least, you know, kind of bask in the afterglow of the prestige of a, you know, award-winning filmmaker who could make movies, uh, you know, at the level of the, the, the top quality, you know, whatever, Hollywood, art house filmmakers. Uh, Tarkovsky was, was right up there. And yet he didn't always, you know, comply with some of their expectations. He wasn't a you know, party line communist by any means. And so he, you know, he, he created some complications even as they sought to find ways to support him and hope that he could play or color within the lines that they laid down. And so Solaris was a bit of a compromise. Um, he actually had Mirror in mind, and he was working on that even since like the mid-60s and was eventually able to create that film. And so, you know, someday I'll get around to talking about that <laughs> and we'll have an episode dedicated to Mirror. Uh, but for right now, let's let's focus on Solaris. This was, uh, you know, it's it was marketed as a response to Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. It was an entry into the Cannes Film Festival. I think it won the, the Grand Jury Prize that year in 1972. Um, and as we've already said, he had to overcome you know a fair amount of interference and and delays and oversight in order to make the film that he envisioned. Uh, and that included some some squabbles with uh, Stanislav Lem, the Polish mm-hmm. author who mm-hmm. wrote the material that this film was based on. Um, are you do you guys familiar with the original source novel at all? Has is that a part of a conversation that we want to have, or is that something to say for another time? Haven't read it. Um, I know of it, and I know of him by uh, reputation. And uh, one thing I've picked up on is that uh, I hear it's a lot more philosophical, which I think is kind of interesting because uh, the film is relatively philosophical. Um, and that, I think that was part of uh, Lem's disappointment is that it was it didn't go too too deep, which is really kind of you know when you think about accessible filmmaking, this might be his most accessible film, and it's still pretty inaccessible to I think most mainstream audiences. Um, so I'm curious to watch it. Yeah, you've got you've got to re- recalibrate your sensibilities to getting this. Uh, yeah, the, the the novel has a lot of um, speculation about the nature of this oceanic intelligence, yeah, and the the phenomena that were appearing on the surface of Solaris as it went through its various changes. And uh, you know, Tarkovsky only had a certain amount for a special effects budget, and really didn't want to get into all of this. Uh, you know, I, I mean. There, there are full chapters dedicated to various uh, schools of thought within the solaristics uh, discipline, the scientific mm. discourse about what this planet's, how it functions and all of that. And it's interesting. I mean, he, he's almost like name dropping different philosophers of science 
that have no connection to reality at all. <laughs> He's just kind of like talking about the 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 disciplinary infighting and competition and rivalries that happen within a, a fully developed you know scientific uh, you know kind of uh, uh, exploration and investigation. And so you know he he likes to play with those ideas, and I think that's definitely a hallmark of you know, late 50s, uh, 60s, and into the 70s kind of nerd, you know, science fiction where you're <laughs> getting into the, the the deeper depths of, of um, you know, just kind of letting your imagination run wild, taking a concept and playing it out to the ultimate there. And so, yeah, I, I, I can see where Tarkovsky felt like some of this is just not cinematic. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and I think he made good choices. Uh, on the printed page, it's a different story. So, Brad, have you had any experience with reading Lem or any of that kind of thing? I have. Um, I read a Lem book. It was not Solaris, but I cannot remember for the life of me what it was called. I'll have to Google okay. it. Um, but he, but he, uh, it was. It reminded me a lot of Asimov and um, mm-hmm. yeah. Arthur C. Clarke. I had just also uh, read the Foundation series, so it was sort of the same, the same sort of style of of science fiction um but i i I find it interesting this feud between uh tarkovsky and lem because i i feel that they're both on the same side of this argument but uh i don't really understand why they're fighting uh because tarkovsky famously filled it with so much earth right his movie Mm -hmm. has so much earth the first third of it takes place on earth but lem's philosophy and and his the speech uh, the mankind needs a mirror. Man needs man, uh, which is probably the most famous speech from the book and this movie is in keeping with that idea, right? And so, you know, what what is man? Man is is, is a is a being from Earth, not from anywhere else. If we are, you know, searching through the cosmos merely to find other versions of ourselves and not really opening our ideas as to uh, uh, what is the full scope of what is out there, um, like, like that's also in keeping with Tarkovsky's philosophy of that we have to look inwards. We have to look at our own planet Earth. Yeah, can I add to that? So one thing that's really interesting about Lem and and this rivalry or, or disagreement is um, Tarkovsky leaned on um, you know Dostoevsky, who of course I have read, and I think a little bit of Tolstoy, and and we, we talk about philosophy and and literature and film, you know, existentialism is is a big part of that, and I think that that that's something that actually made the film more effective in, in that these, especially um, Chris, the lead character, very much a Dostoevsky type of character and, uh, and the others are, you know, kind of in their own world. So, so yeah, it, it is interesting that it sounds like Brad, to your point, he, um, he, he incorporated some of the, some of the items, but um, you know, he kind of took what he wanted and left what he didn't. And I think Lem just wanted him to just, you know, cut and paste it <laughs> into a film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kelvin is definitely a troubled soul. He is the fulcrum. He is the focal point of this film. Uh, of course, Hari, uh, Natalia Bondarchuk, is the you know luminous presence that I think gives this film such an incredible life. I think the two leads pair very well, and the supporting cast definitely has its strengths. But I'm just kind of curious to hear more of your thoughts about 
you know, the whole premise of the film and, and, and kind of where it takes us. And I don't know who wants to go first on that, but I'll just kind of throw it open to you. Uh, how do you want to, you know, do your own sort of sifting and analysis of the storyline? We, we have the prologue about 40 minutes or so on earth that gets us prepared to enter the space station. And then you have all the events there. Um, Brad, maybe I'll just kind of kick it over to you. What What is your kind of basic take on this storyline and, 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 and where does it resonate with you? I mean, I'd, I'd like to jump off what you said about Hari because um, yeah. for me, I think the heart and soul of this movie, even though she arrives only about ha- just before the halfway mark, um, the heart and soul of this movie for me is her and uh, her existential crisis um for me is what this is is sort of what this film is about where you are she is a copy of a hari that has uh committed suicide of a real life person who committed suicide but here she is self-aware she's self-aware that she is a copy she's self-aware that um she wouldn't exist without this original that no longer exists She's also self-aware that she can choose and make decisions for herself uh, separate from what the old Hari did, even though there seems to sort of be this suicidal complex that she has where she seems to be driven to self-harm. And I think that that is sort of uh, the, the microcosm of the whole uh, of the, of all of humanity where her, her self-actualization, self-realization is sort of like can be seen as a, one metaphor for all of us, all of us here in the cosmos. Again, keeping with Lem and Tarkovsky's belief that to to understand what's out there, we have to turn inward. We have to become so much more aware of who we are, are the choices in front of us. Um, and, and the, the decisions that we have made in the past with the ones that can come with us that have to come with us and the ones that we need to shed in order to move forward. Um, I know that sounds like a lot. Um, I hope that all makes sense. <laughs> no, but, it, yeah. it, it really does. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, that's, that's my take. Um, for, I mean, this film is enormous. There's so much going on and going through it which i can't wait to dig into but if i if i stood back from it and looked at it as one giant piece that's that's what i get yeah they're definitely the the whole self-consciousness aspect of just kind of realizing i exist and i have to do something about it it's kind (laughs) of like the fundamental problem uh aaron you want to follow up on any of that yeah, and you know your your question was about the plot, and it's really tough to just diagram the plot yeah, of yeah, this film. Really I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, well, you did mention the um, the opening sequence, uh, and I think the 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 very beginning uh, with him him you know really immersing himself in nature and really um, kind of relishing that experience, appreciating that the you know, that kind of pays off. Well, no, it very much pays off at the very end, but really all throughout, you, you know, it's kind of a it, it puts you in in his uh, mind mindset, and I agree that Hari is um, is kind of the the focal point. Uh, you know, she's and I think she actually, you know, she's a phenomenal char- character in herself, and it's a great performance. But she also um, flushes out the other characters. You know, I, I think Agreed. one of the best scenes, 
is that when they're in that room, uh, the same one, my favorite part of the movie is when she's, uh, you know, just kind of discovering her own humanity, kind of like what Brad was, was talking about and, um, and really becoming more human, um, you know, more human than human, you know, and it kind of like makes you question what life is like. And I, um, so when, my favorite scene is when she was looking at the painting and then uh, of course, Tarkovsky loves these little uh, digressions and, and there's many of them here and they're, they're all beautiful. Uh, but when they, when she looks at the, uh, it's Bruegel's, um, and then mm. it kind of comes to yes. life and, and it kind of speaks to the fact that she, you know, that existential crisis, she can't actually really understand humanity, but she is learning to become human just through interacting with, uh, with Chris and, and, uh, the other two more, mostly Chris. Yeah, that's a fascinating point in that Solaris is kind of an advanced intelligence. It is, it is beyond humanity's capacity to fully um, kind of comprehend what Solaris is or how it functions, how it thinks. And you're right, the, the Bruegel painting is a very, you know, evocative and moving section of this film. It certainly uh, it seems to have been an influence on Kuristami in 24 Frames, his final film, because he does an extended sort of meditation on that particular yeah. painting, The Hunters in the Snow. However, it didn't strike me until maybe one of my second or third rewatches this week that, oh yeah, this is this is Hari's perception of the painting. This isn't mm -hmm. humans seeing it. Mm -hmm. They they just say, oh, that's a nice painting up in the gallery. Hari is like penetrating what Bruegel is capturing here. And in that fine detail, you, you recognize there's an, an alien intelligence that is rapidly absorbing and and processing information from humanity's past and that's quite a phenomenal moment that was one of those light bulbs that kind of lit up for me as i was again re-watching it yeah i just wanted to jump off what aaron said about hari doesn't know why she exists and we don't know why we exist and i think that that right. is is a, a connection that tarkovsky is strongly making uh, in 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 how he depicts Hari, right, right. She's she's a newborn being. I mean, even mm -hmm. though, like I said, she's in the body of a fully mature adult woman, she really is just dawning into consciousness, and so she has to go through all those those adjustments that any new newborn creature goes through. I mean, I was talking just before we started recording that my wife and I launched a couple of butterflies <laughs> into our backyard. I mean, we had them from little, you know, worms to, to chrysalises, you know, caterpillars, whatever. And, and they just, you know, hatched today and, and launched. And so, you know, the, the, and one of the butterflies took right off and the other one was kind of slow and wanted to sort of sit on Julie's finger and sit on a plant. <laughs> and, and, and it, it, it kind of came into life right before our eyes. It was pretty pretty exciting and, and and pretty wonderful to to, to watch that spectacle and, and here's chris you know again with all of all of his demons from the past his regrets over his negligence his ambitions his taking his young wife for granted and now here he is with another chance to in some form at least in his own mind reconcile and and uh, you know kind of amend his his ways and 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 kind of accommodate you know the the failures of his past 
by, uh, you know, getting it right this time. And yet you really cannot undo the past. And so there's this, this temptation to think that we can move on and, 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 you know, tidy things up, but that's not exactly uh, a possibility here, but it, it is, it's just so fascinating to sort of see those dynamics and all the, the psychological implications of that and, and even to apply it to our own lives. Cause I think mm-hmm. I, you know, that's, that's the common factor. We all have those regrets. We all have those moments. Where it's like, Oh, I wish, I wish I didn't say that. I wish I hadn't done that or things that were done to us or, or uh, you know, decisions made by people who let us down in some ways. And, and how, how do you, how do you work through all those complications? I mean, this, this takes it into a very futuristic and, and sci-fi type of setting, but the fundamental problems that are being handled here are all extremely relatable to those of us who have spent our whole lives on earth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, using that butterfly analogy, I think Hari is, and maybe, and I don't know about the other, the other guests because we don't see much of them, mm-hmm. but I wonder her, her, and this is part of the existential crisis as well, but you know, she also knows that she's doomed as well. And mm-hmm. you know, that kind of plays out in how her, um, her, her character arc, uh, uh whereas, and you, you know, just the plot is that everybody has their own guest guest. And, uh, you know, we, we only see bits and pieces of the other, actually we never see, um, the, um, what's his name? Stout, Strout? Stout. We we never Strout. see his, but uh, but whoever it is is not very nice, yeah. and we and uh, we do, we do see the dwarf for the um for uh, the um, Sartorius. Sartorius. Yeah. Sartorius, yeah, played by the magnificent uh, Solonitian, uh, who yeah. doesn't get yeah. much to do this time, which is interesting. Uh, but, well, uh, he makes. I think he makes pretty good use of his limited screen time. I mean, the the, the sparks yeah. really fly between uh, Calvin and Sartorius in that early scene. Yeah, they're almost yeah. like ready to come to blows, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> except for the futility of like, what are you going to do? Beat each other up? I mean, what's the point <laughs> of that, <laughs> right? And, but and I, it do, was... I do love like how Sartorius is kind of jealous of of chris that like oh yeah the, the, mm-hmm. his guest is you know his late wife like there's a an splendid specimen there. yeah right, right. Yeah. she's beautiful there's a history there's an intimacy there's a relationship that you can keep building so you won't get that feel of loneliness we don't know what these other guests are one you know one of them is physically abusing uh strout stout um and the other one, we have no idea, but we can tell that Sartorius just has this this emptiness inside, and he's very much jealous of Chris when when Chris isn't aware aware of him. We can, we can see that the camera can see that. What do you think about the the sort of the hypothesis that these three characters are kind of three different ways of responding to our fundamental human dilemmas? I mean, Sartorius is the hardcore materialist cynic skeptic you know it's just all a matter of functions and processes and we have no control it doesn't really make a difference what we do we're just playing out the function uh snout is just kind of like i'm just gonna get drunk and forget my problems (laughs) (laughs) and then kelvin is trying to take a more you know humane spiritual compassionate approach to it all uh, but even there, he has his own weaknesses and vulnerabilities. But I, I thought, you know, those kind of are three basic kind of categories, if you will, of, of how to go through life. Is it, <laughs> and is I, it I like just wondered, the, yeah. 
id ego super ego kind of thing is that maybe yeah, a bit too I guess reductive? If put the freudian uh, uh <laughs> application over the top of it there yeah I, I think that makes sense yeah i think it's kind of interesting that uh the, there you have these three characters and yeah uh sartorius he, he's also the most scientific and he seems to be the most competent and the most reasonable and he does uh, you know see hari for what she is and doesn't really respond to her and whatsoever He's um, also an asshole. <laughs> he's a bit of an asshole. But, you know, think of, thinking yeah. of this in the terms of this is a seventies. You know, during the Cold War, the midst of the Cold War, uh, and under you know, it's a Russian production, a Soviet production. So you know, communist. And these three people are really not uh, living in the. You know, they're not comrades. They're not living the the spirit of co- cooperation. And I think the the plot actually kind of. Uh, divides them i mean it's it's almost like you know today everybody sits around and looks at their phones you know on solaris they all stay in their rooms and hang out with their guests or hide their guests or whatever they're doing and um, so they're it's very much a a separate apart um and when they come together yeah sometimes there's friction sometimes uh there's confrontation but uh, there's really not and even when they they obtain some so, you know, they, they solve the, the guests by the end. It doesn't seem like they accomplished that together. It's been very independent. Yeah, really. All they've figured out is how to annihilate the guests, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. They, or have yeah. they? Or have or they? Have, yeah. well, well, right. we'll get to that, I'm sure. Well, yeah, it takes <laughs> it to another level. Um, but, you know, there's there are lots of other interesting themes in here. I mean, there's the whole... I mean, Tarkovsky does a little bit of film within a film here because he's got uh, Kelvin's home movies mm-hmm. that he brought with him from Earth to the space station as a maybe kind of a connection point, just kind of a maybe it's a bit of sentimentalia. Maybe it's a, a chance for him to, you know, ponder some things, that, you know, like, you know, sometimes I go on vacations or I have little kind of weekend retreats where I'm just going to focus on writing or journaling or something like that. And maybe he sees this uh, chance to, to visit Solaris as a, as a, as a way to get away from it all. You know, he's got some conflicts at home. He's got obviously shadows from his past, but the fact that he takes these home movies and these are like Tarkovsky home movies, which means they are, brilliant and <laughs> lyrical and 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 you know epic shots i mean you know the 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 pictures of uh the images of of kelvin's mother and her little kind of crocheted pattern dress i mean and just the elegance of it all is is quite uh, it's very satisfying especially once you've kind of uh, accommodated yourself to the rhythms of tarkovsky's style of filmmaking but you know tarkovsky is positing film in particular, as a way of capturing the past. I mean, he titled his biography uh, Sculpting in Time, and that's his approach to filmmaking. He's like, he's capturing, you know, ephemeral moments in some kind of semi-permanent medium uh, film and and using that as a way of, of uh, sort of affecting and uplifting our emotions, kind of ennobling some of our basic impulses into, you know, something approaching art. And I, I wonder if you guys have any thoughts about just how that element was incorporated, as well as the other films, which were the kind of the backstory, Burton's report, uh, and and the, you know, the narrative of what's going on at this cursed space station. 
Well, yeah, good point. A good contrast regarding the Cold War. Uh, the the Home on Earth film is very much anti Tarkovsky. I think it's uh, it's almost like it looks like a Super Eight or something. I don't know what yeah. it was shot on, but it's very it's brutalism in, in, in its essence. Whereas, yeah, the yeah, the films that um, that he reflects on, and and of course Tarkovsky, you know, he's the master. He interweaves that with uh, with some excellent cutting interesting use of color uh i i think of that uh you know an ultimate scene when um he's seeing the um hari and his mother flashing back and then you know cutting to him on solaris with uh you know it's almost like a a blue overlay so yeah i think it's it does um inform the character's dilemma um and you know what he's going through and what he's processing through Hari through his relationship with Hari, and also I think I think there is a growth for the character on on Solaris. I think he does reach you know he does he does come to love this fake copy, at least he he says so. We we can't really see inside him, um, but you know you kind of wonder if he was really capable of that before. You know, given the the circumstances with his his wife, he was not very close with his mother, which I think might have been a little autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I just think it's it's just part of beautiful filmmaking for for one, but it also um, you know gives fleshes out that great character. What do you think, Brad? Yeah, I, I think they, there's pieces of the puzzle that are in those home movies um, as to Chris's relationship with his mother, especially a little bit of his father, but especially his mother. I mean, afterwards, uh, when Hari and Chris are looking in, that's that shot when they're looking in the mirror themselves and she says she feels that there was something with the relationship with the woman in the white coat which is his mother and set in the latter half of those home movies the mother is shown in a white coat looking really bored and smoking so the there's there's clues there that perhaps Hari and the mother didn't get along when they met um perhaps that might be a reason for Hari's sense of self-harm, Hari's sense of depression, which which might lead her to suicidal acts. Yeah. We don't know specifically, um, but we have a sense. And also, when she looked like when we mentioned the Bruegel painting, right? Like, there's a brief shot. There's a recurrence of those home movies when she's staring at that Bruegel painting. Mm. Yeah. So again. They, these interactions with Chris's family seem to be weaved to the larger picture of of the large uh, snowscape of the Bruegel painting where there are lots mm-hmm. of people and they all have their own little stories. They were called drolleries, this style of painting, where a bunch of little characters and they're all doing these little, enacting these little scenes. And she and Tarkovsky are weaving Chris's story with these with these scenes that they are just another one of these characters in Bruegel's painting. Yeah, I, I love that you brought up the smoking. I, I because one thing is Hari smoke also smoked cigarettes yes. in, in the room. Yeah. And but she couldn't <laughs> drink water. at a space station. I just yeah. think <laughs> <laughs> anyways, yeah, proceed. <laughs> but um but you know I, and, and I think we, we don't know how she works. We don't I mean, nothing is explained really but she is unable to drink water yet she can smoke she can ingest uh, a chemical um that 
destroys her for a moment at least. Um, but you know, you kind of have to think, you know, maybe these, maybe this is part of the memories that the ocean is drawing on these home mit movies because they are, you know, in Kelvin's possession. I mean, I'm just speculating. I don't know, yeah. but uh, but that would make sense because it, it, otherwise it's kind of a plot hole. Like you know, you don't have a digestive system, so you can't drink, but you can inhale. <laughs> Unlike Bill Clinton. Sorry. <laughs> No, I mean, it, those are all really fascinating little tangents that you can sort of, you know, play out in, in your mind. But I think, yeah, the the fact that Hari appears to have had a hard time, you know, the, the earthly Hari being accepted into the family. And again, you don't know where this is some autobiography of Tarkovsky. I mean, uh, yeah, as was mentioned earlier that, you know, he, he did abandon his first wife and child. He pursued his artistic career. And, you know, as, as is almost inevitable, you're going to feel some kind of pangs of regret and remorse over, you know, making a very difficult choice. You know, he did what he felt he had to do, but that doesn't negate the pain and anguish of having to have actually done it and, and hurt some people in that process. So, uh, you know, there, there, that's the thing. I mean, this, it feels like, you know, Tarkovsky's filmmaking, even while he's you know, aiming for these transcendent, you know, kind of global, timeless planes of, of discourse and, and reflection, he's also pouring his personal heart and soul, his his story into into these films as a way of working out, you know, the changes and chapters of his own life. And I, I think because he's doing that with, uh, you know, a pretty high degree of sincerity and, and vulnerability, that is a connection point that a lot of viewers such as ourselves can connect connect yeah. it with because I, I feel like, yeah, that all, all of those things, I mean, the, the phenomena of one's romantic intimate partner being a source of both incredible pleasure and satisfaction and joy and fulfillment, but also <laughs> they get to know us on this personal level where, they can just say one little thing or give us one little look and it's like, Oh, I'm crushed. <laughs> you, you got me, <laughs> you know? And, and that is, that is just the, the truth of life is that, um, you know, our greatest sources of happiness can also be sources of, 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 you know, strain and difficulty to say the least, uh, because they know us so well. And I think that's what you see happening with, with Hari and Chris as their relationship, proceeds even if it's the second or third or whatever replicant um there's something deep within both of these beings that really understands each other and and that's what overcomes the you know the obvious gap that you know this hari is a replicant she's an alien she's a different form of life she's got a different you know, molecular structure uh for pete's sake but uh there is something irresistibly attractive going on there and that is beyond the capacity of logic and reason to explain <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> but, but i mean and, and and you know for for film to bring us into that kind of space that's a pretty remarkable achievement right there oh. It's and, and that's why only Tarkovsky gets us there. So yeah, yeah, and that's why this is you know for, for science fiction films. You know, we we can talk about two thousand one or you know any any from that era or even now, but you know they don't have 
you'd only think of them as having a heart and, uh, yeah. and, and really an emotional journey. I mean, maybe a little bit, maybe there's a love interest, um, but nothing this deep. And I think, uh, you know, David, as you mentioned that Tarkovsky does inject a little bit of his personal life into each of his films. And I think that's where, um, that, that's, that's where that brilliance uh, comes from. Um, you know, that's how it's so identifiable because, and that's how it's, that's, that's where the depth comes from because, uh, you know, that's, it's not really, you can't pretend, you can't make up these emotional connections and these regrets and, uh, and how people deal with them. Um, I mean, frankly, Even- he shot the first one out of the, <laughs> how on a rocket. So, you know, there definitely was a little bit of a evolution. Well, and it was, isn't it fascinating how quickly that that relationship transformed? Because you know yeah. the, his first reaction was, "Get rid of this thing. This is dangerous. I can't handle it." You know, you know whatever it costs. You know, I mean, you know, launching a rocket from the space station is probably depleted resources. It's just not <laughs> something you just kind of flip the switch and go, right? Uh, and yet he took it upon himself to uh, just kind of, you know, you know blow the hatch open and, and send her out uh, without any consultation or anything else. I think that there's, uh, you, you could argue this is, like his next film was Mirror, and that's his yeah. most closely autobiographical film. But right. there is so much in this film that looks like mm-hmm. it was B-roll lifted out of Mirror, even though it was shot before. I mean, Absolutely. I could say the same for, uh, especially Nostalgia and The Sacrifice, um, you know, some of his other films like Stalker, Andre Rublev, Ivan's Childhood, those very much look like those worlds. But this one that we talked about, the home movies, that is like the most and, and, and that is the most obvious example of, for me of stuff that could have just been like airlifted and put into mirror. Hmm. That's a great point about sacrifice, because you could, you could draw a parallel between the first 45 minutes of Solaris and the first 45 minutes of Sacrifice. Which is you know its family exposition, of course, without the science fiction, um, you know, exposition. Yeah, in an isolated cottage. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, one house had rain inside, and the other one burned up. So that's the difference. <laughs> <laughs> that's, true. that's true. Maybe we should go to the uh, to that to that house. <laughs> um. uh, how about just kind of? Well, let's just talk about some of the actors. Uh, what do y'all think about Natalia Bondarchuk? I mean, I I was just absolutely mesmerized, and I will continue to just be fascinated by all of the subtleties that she packed in to this role when she was still a teenager. For Pete's sake, it's just mm-hmm. really incredible. It's a, a remarkable performance. Well, I had said earlier that um, she makes this film for me. And uh, I that I mean, I'm just going to echo that she is the heart of this film, and as you had just said, uh, David, the modulations that she puts to the various versions of Hari um, are show up, are there, uh, are noticeable, and they stand out um, as individual, as different types of this one character. Yeah, there's there's so much complexity, so much depth, and 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 it, just sheer intelligence, but also you know the sensual power, uh, her resurrection scene. I mean, not mm-hmm. just the gyrations on the floor, but 
looking at her hand as she's coming back into consciousness Mm -hmm. and uh i mean incredibly courageous and i don't know i I don't know where that came from i mean she's the daughter of sergey bondarchuk the the director of war and peace and kind of a great soviet filmmaker in his own right but and she actually introduced um tarkovsky to this novel apparently she she read it as like a 13 year old and gave him a copy of the novel and that's where he kind of got the first inclinations to make this into a movie. I mean, wow. She, she considers <laughs> this her, uh, she considers this her greatest performance. She'd been in over 40 films, but this one is her favorite. Yeah. And frankly, I think this is up there with one of the best performances in a Tarkovsky film and certainly one of the most unique. Uh, and I, I think, you know, the, we, we talked about the, the, the painting and, and that, that uh, that scene in the room with all four of them together, and that, that's where she displays a lot of emotion. And you know, that's that's typical acting we see uh, from you know uh, Meryl Streep, that that caliber of actor, uh, and it was very impressive. But I, I'm glad you mentioned kind of the sci-fi. You know, it, there is something a little unnatural about her performance, which re- kind of reminds us that she's somewhat human. You know, based on humanity. Yeah like you mentioned, different molecular stru- structure, uh, different memories, but she's confused. And, um, and sometimes, yes, when she lashes out uh, and when she heals, you know, I, just the looks on her faces in those scenes really uh, stood out to me. And yeah, I agree. The gyrations on the floor, while interesting, that's, that's not, the, um, not the peak of her performance, but, uh, but just, right. I, yeah, she, she sold it. Um, she sold it as this somewhat evolving species that is yearning towards humanity and um and is very confused perplexed tormented by that whole experience and yet still capable of becoming a caretaker to chris in his moments Mm -hmm. of anguish and and you know when he's overwhelmed at the end she is kind of like his nurse she's the one by his bedside as he's kind of trying to recover his sensibilities and and uh you know just kind of get this act back together and that wonderful shot of, of her kind of caressing his head. Yeah. And then she looks mm-hmm. right into the camera and the spotlight takes over. That's a that's, great, that's it. Yeah. It, it, it. It's, it's powerful. It, it gives me mm-hmm. goosebumps just thinking about it again. Agreed. Like the last third of the film, so many, I mean, there's all, always there's great shots throughout, but the last third I think is really where um, Tarkovsky was like flexing his muscles. Well, yeah, because I, that's the thing. The film continues to build and build and build right up to the yeah. very end. And that's yeah. and then maybe that's a good point for us to just kind of get into our analysis of that final scene. So, uh, Brad, you want to give us your, your take on the, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, the, the, the twist ending or the, the final revelation there? Uh, as we see after, after we've learned that Hari has submitted herself to the Annihilator, in effect, committing a second suicide for the sake of Chris. She did it out of love for him and out mm. of what she thought was in their best interest. Uh, we see, you know, Chris is advised to return to Earth, and that's kind of what we get the impression until the camera pulls away. So tell me a little I'm bit of what you're <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So we, we're back where we started, the flowing weeds and the dacha house, and the pond, and and all of that, but something just a little bit different. Yes. Can we spoil it? Can we spoil it? Yeah, yeah, this? please do. Yeah, let <laughs> okay. us know. I am looking for your verdict here. <laughs> okay. So the very for 
I mean, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen Solaris, please stop. Watch the movie. <laughs> Come back and join us. But the very end of this movie, uh, Chris returns to his family cottage, which is where the film began with his father and presumably aunt, even though she's not in this final scene. Um, the music of Bach, which is what uh, Tarkovsky has been associating with Earth, also returns. But and we get the shots the same, the, the reeds in the water, um, you know, it looks like it did at the very beginning. The pond's a little frozen over, but besides that, it looks like it did. Um, but the music of Bach fades. We get the ambient sound that Solaris, the planet, has been making throughout the scene. And Chris returns to the cottage to find his father inside, sorting through books. And the inside the house, it's raining in a little spot. His father walks through the rain, um, kind of oblivious that it even exists, until he sees Chris. Um, he steps outside. Chris uh, falls onto his knees, uh, reminiscent of Rembrandt's uh, uh, prodigal son returning. Um, and then we, we, we have a big zoom out. So the, the camera's on a crane, and it pulls backwards and back and back and back. Then the camera's on a helicopter. It pulls back and back and back. We see part of a highway, more of the surrounding marsh. And then we're in a matte painting that's pulled back even further. And we can see that this is an island, and an island on the planet Solaris. Surrounding this island is nothing but the water of Solaris. Um so what does this mean? Um, it is open to, I mean, it is an ending that is open to interpretation. There are uh, literal uh, things said to us after they fire that um, brain scan radiation machine at Solaris. Um, that's all done in dialogue. We don't actually see it. Um, it's described that islands have been appearing on the surface of Solaris. So it's kind of just sort of a thrown away little bit of exposition. So is this an island on Solaris? Was Chris taken in, was he, was he trying to return to earth and Solaris had other plans and convinced him or, or commandeer the ship or whatever. Solaris works on dream logic as we know. So is he just trapped on Solaris because Solaris wants to keep him there? Um, I like the idea myself that it was all just always Solaris. We've never seen Chris anywhere on Earth besides this family cottage. And if this family cottage is replicated and exists on Solaris, could it be that he was just always on Solaris? Mm -hmm. There was not any sort of Earth that he was from. The only character that we see on Earth that is somewhere other then that cottage is Burton and right. his travel through the futuristic city. So I right. can believe that I, I could, I could believe that that might be a recreation by Solaris of maybe an actual trip that Burton did go on. But I kind of like, I, I mean, I, I like it both ways. That's the nice thing about ambiguous endings. I like to not <laughs> actually have the answer, I like it to just keep pondering in my head until I die. That's what's so great. That's um, right. You just toss those dice back and forth and let exactly. them roll where they will. Right? Exactly. I mean, you can say the exact same for 2001, right? The yeah, supposed sure. call and answer to this, where that ending with the star child, everything that happens in, in that apartment, all that stuff. 
sure, open to your interpretation. It can be whatever you want it to be as you make a persuasive argument. Um, so yeah, that's how that's how I like to read it. I think it's one of the greatest final shots like ever. Mm. Um, it's just it, there's no person that can watch this movie and not have that final image just burned into your memory banks. I yeah. Especially with the accompaniment of that music, it just builds to this intense crescendo of kind of yes. just rumbling, you know, it kind of bone shaking music. If you if you put the sound up loud enough, it's it's really quite a remarkable effect. Uh, Aaron, what are your thoughts on that concluding scene? Well, uh, I love that, Brad. Um, I I don't have all the answers. I, I don't think any of us will. Um, but I, I I think that um, that's been. Um, that, let me go back to what I said at the beginning of the, of the episode or our segment is that Tchaikovsky didn't want people to really try to interpret his, um, his movies uh, in different ways. Yet he gives us this. <laughs> it's like <laughs> there's water. It's raining on, uh, on his dad's head for like 20 seconds. And he, uh, <laughs> he's just oblivious. Dad's just rolling with it. Right. See, I think, I think Brad, that theory is, you know, that, that came to me as well. I think that's probably, you know, probably out there on some YouTube internets. Um, I also think that it's possible and maybe, you know, kind of like a more likely um, ending is that, um, you know, the, the guest program was the, um, the initial response of uh, the, the, the ocean to, to the, these, I guess, invaders or, uh, you know, new people. And, you know, it, it read their memory banks when they, um, when they, push themselves towards it. Um, and, you know, the guests were imperfect as we saw. Uh, and, and, and even though we didn't see the, uh, the guests of the other people, you know, we kind of can infer that they, they didn't uh, work, they didn't function as well. So I think this is almost like ocean 2.0. Um, so this, this is my theory is that uh, this is ocean going at the next level. So, you know, it's, it's not just the guest and, you know, Hari probably is a painful memory at this time, but, um, but because, Chris has had this evolution and, uh, and he, he has, you know, kind of felt some, something that seems like genuine love and has changed and you know, to the point to where he can actually submit to his father at the end and his alleged father. Um, I think this is uh, just another, um, I guess, uh, uh, creation of the, uh, of the ocean. And I think it's also, it's just based on more, more intelligence from what they've learned from Chris and that's where the imperfections are. So, so my thinking is that probably everybody has these islands. So Sartorius has his, uh, probably with uh, whatever that small um, figure person was. I, I don't think, um, uh, what was those names? Strout? Snout. Snout. Yeah. Snout. Yeah. I, I would not want to go to his island. <laughs> there is true. That would be, that would be. It's a dive under, bar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It would be like Cannibal Island. He's got all the good drugs <laughs> on his island. <laughs> but it, it does. Yeah. It does. There's just so much in that scene, and and it and it does pick up where the other scene left off. Um, so so yeah, your your theory holds water too, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but really, every theory. I mean, it could be a dream too. You know, that's the, kind of a cop out, and probably yeah. not uh, what Tarkovsky intended. Um, and I know you had another segment prior to this, but uh, are we on? the same track with them well i think i think there is i mean we, we've had all different kind of uh slants and angles on this i mine is that i i'm going to say that kelvin sort of voluntarily 
you know, submitted to Solaris. I I, I kind of see that scene, the you know, the optical illusions, if you will, the camera tricks where he's meeting multiple versions of Hari as well as his mother. That was kind of his reconciliation with these two, you know, key women in his life and having somehow achieved some degree of reconciliation there he's now going to go back and work it out with his dad, you know? And even if it's just a facsimile, even if it's not the actual persons, it's as close as he has an opportunity to address them. And I, I did talk about, you know, the the dilemma that we often face when a loved one has departed, you know, like died, or a relationship has irrevocably broken and you'll never see that person again. And even though you, you still yearn for some chance to, try to make things right. I, I kind of feel like that's what's happening here. Uh, that, that, you know, the return of the prodigal son, I think is, is very specific and very significant in that, you know, um, you know, it, as in the parable itself, we are aware that we've done something that is in its nature unforgivable. And yet we still seek that kind of forgiveness and that redemption if at all possible. And I feel like there yeah, that's that's kind of that deep human yearning that Tarkovsky's tapping into. And that's not a scene that was in the novel. You know, Lem took right. it in a whole different direction. So this is Tarkovsky's unique contribution to the story or the myth, if you will, of of Solaris. And uh, you know, even even you know, talking about myth, they they even cite the myth of Sisyphus and mm-hmm. the kind of pointlessness to some of these endeavors, even though the urgency to try to fix the problem remains before us, there are some things you can just never fully settle, but that doesn't stop us from trying. There's also the reference to Don Quixote, which is yeah. keeping with that yeah. as well, the purposeless of it. Yeah. Um, what I what the one thing I really love the about the ending is that throughout the film, Tarkovsky seems to obfuscate Solaris and Earth, and I think that the ending kind of crystallizes that um, that maybe there are one in the same. Um, that might be yeah. something that Lem had a problem with, but I don't have a problem with that, and I don't think Tarkovsky does either. Yeah, I think Lem really wanted to go out on that speculative tangent of just thinking about encountering alien intelligences and what might that be like and the problems of science and bureaucracy and getting approval for funding and research and all that kind of stuff, which is all very interesting. But I think Tarkovsky kicked it to a higher level. I mean, I don't mean to slam on Lem at all. I mean, his novel produces all kinds of fascinating insights. I was painting my house this past week and so i had it on audiobook and my earbuds and i will say this also if you want to get the best translation of of lem's novel the the copy that you'll buy on paperback is is not the one that the lem estate approves they've approved the audiobook and also the kindle version of that same translation but apparently there's some kind of barrier that has prevented them from issuing it in paperback so if you really want to read the best translation of the novel you know, either by the Kindle or the Audible audiobook, because that's that's where I got mine. And it, it's it's a quality piece of work, if you like that kind of speculative science fiction. But like I say, Tarkovsky, you know, pursued his own vision and took it in his own direction. So uh, I'll give you both one last chance if there's any other points you want to raise before we wrap up our conversation. But I see our time is winding down. So, uh, uh, Aaron, any, any final comments you want to make about Solaris, the things that we didn't 
quite touch on quite yet? Uh, we didn't touch on the visuals too much. Uh, mm. The yeah. one thing is, uh, and, and it kind of lends credence to Brad's theory, is that we don't see him go into space except for maybe that uh, little shot of uh, yeah. him descending to Solaire, Solaire to the station. Um, but I, well, we know that's budgetary reasons. But given that he had such a little budget, um, I really thought that the um, the snip, snippets of the ocean and uh, how those changed throughout the film, and as the the ocean almost became a character in itself, uh, that well, its own character arc, you could say, um, I, I thought those were very very beautiful. I mean, I think he probably did it with limited means, but um, but I think it worked. Kind of he, seemed very very fractalish in a, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so and and of course, there's but also nice, very organic, very very yes, yeah. you know textured and 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 graspable in a sense you know it was very, the, very uh, powerful. Yeah. not not, the, not like just filming our ocean but it, it felt like the ocean was like a you know animated you know there, was actually yeah, an organism yeah there's a uh, on the special features on the blu-ray um i think it's the cinematographer or the art director um it, it was paint thinner what is that acetin acetidin or something um, paint thinner mixed with acetone uh, or uh, something you know acetone oh, that's yeah. the word i'm looking for uh mixed with uh silver powder and aluminum powder like real healthy stuff right um, <laughs> <laughs> to uh, and then different speeds of uh film stock of of filming so high speed filming low speed filming to get those effects nice yeah, I, I mean, I, I really appreciate his his craftiness, if you will, of creating this kind of otherworldly atmosphere uh, on a relatively shoestring budget. Pretty brilliant. But Brad, David, anything you want to bring up uh, David, about the film? Yeah, Tarkovsky is not the only one who filmed an adaptation of Lem's novel. Yeah, there was an earlier version, and then there's also the yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the Soderbergh and Clooney version. So yeah, I indulge us for a few more minutes. uh, But yeah, I saw your three-letter comment. Oof. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, let's. I'm being a little bit of a dick, I guess, but I did rewatch it because I wanted to compare. Um, So in 2002, Steven Soderbergh directed his own version of. Of uh, Solaris of Stan- of Lem's novel, starring George Clooney and uh, Natasha McClone. I think that's how McClone. I think is how McClone. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and uh, Jeremy Davies and Viola Davis. Uh, yeah, and so produced by James Cameron as well. Produced so by James Cameron. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, and it clocks in at just ninety nine minutes, as opposed to this almost three hour film. Um, but I, I, I don't know if the past guests talked about this or not. We did, did not, they, no. You did nope. not? Okay. So you um, got a fresh so, take. Go for okay. it. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I know that this film does have some defenders. I am not one of them. I should say outright <laughs> um, that Soderbergh doesn't really do much for me. I think his best films are just okay. And then some of them I just don't think work at all. And um, I, I found this film to be... Uh, so frustrating because I, I don't like anything that's happening. I don't like anybody that's in it. If Tarkovsky is giving us, like, I, I'll again, I'll defend his his vision of Earth and the need for it to be in this film because it's beautiful and and the people in it are beautiful and there you know there's nature, there's art, there's history, there's family, there's love. These are things that we we think positively of ourselves as human beings. We we like these qualities. Whereas I don't know, 
Soderbergh's film is just full of like snippy, bougie people at at uh, dinner parties <laughs> saying like awful things to one another, and I yeah, don't I understand yeah. like what am I supposed to be rooting for? Because the the thesis is the same. It even starts like the the famous speech that humanity needs a mirror, man needs a mirror, man needs man. Like the first two lines of that speech, Soderbergh gives, and then he just sort of drops the rest of it. And I'm like, where's the rest of that speech, Stephen? Mm-hmm. It's like, that's <laughs> like the crucial thing. I just feel like, uh, I don't know, so frustrated. Like, like, give me the rest of it, follow through, which is how I kind of always feel about Soderbergh. But yeah, I mean, no, I mean- well, there, there's a piece of this that just feels like such a vanity project on, on Clooney's part in particular. I mean, did you get that that vibe as well? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. That like they, you can tell that they both like saw the Tarkovsky film and wanted to do their own spin on it. Wanted to do something that was maybe shorter. Like, and I understand Hollywood. Like, it's sure make it a bit more commercial. There are some thriller elements to the last half, especially with Jeremy Davies character that don't really amount to much and it was just interesting to contrast because those thriller elements are not in Tarkovsky's Solaris like the entire plot of the you know brainwave radiation machine that they're going to fire at Solaris in in Tarkovsky's movie that's the engine that drives that movie but it is in the background almost entirely Mm -hmm, that Tarkovsky's is all about his is Hari's relationship with Chris whereas this film there's so little time spent on that relationship. There's only one real scene where uh, it's it's Rhea instead of Hari in right, um, and that's how her name was yeah. translated in the original version of of the English translation of of Lem's novel. Oh, so I that's see. I see. so Rhea is where it, that came from. The the that's original translator changed her name for some reason, but it, it's always been Hari in Lem's novel. But there's there's only one scene where she is kind of self-aware. And again, it's not really brought up again. Um, And Soderbergh seems to just want to rush through all of these beats rather than really selling the points that I think not only Tarkovsky, but also Lem made. He just he wants to rush through it from one point to another. There's the, the there's a final sort of montage thingy, kind of like in Tarkovsky's version, when Chris is sort of in bed hallucinating. They even recreate the shot of the many versions of Hera slash Rhea. Um, but then there's a shot of the door being busted and there's like blood around its edges. And it is this quick throwaway shot. And there is a brief mention of the door not being able to be opened from one side or something. And I know from Tarkovsky's movie that she fights through the door. And that is such an incredible scene where she doesn't understand how this door works. And and Solaris has gifted these guests with a superhuman strength that she tears this door down and her arms are all covered with blood and and open cuts that quickly disappear um, as 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 she regenerates, Whereas, and like, again that that wonderful in camera editing. Not to interrupt you, but too much. But but yeah, that's just such a remarkable shot. I mean, obviously there's some things happening off camera to make that transition, but it's all one solid take. I mean, it it's really brilliant filmmaking. Yeah, exactly. And and you can say what you like. To, I will never say that Tarkovsky is like going to give you at the edge of your seat because he's not. He's famously known for one of the slowest directors that we have 
but there is always something visceral going on that mm-hmm. grabs your attention even if it's a low drone and a close-up uh, you know a push-in of a painting like there is always something that's going on and that is not what Soderbergh is giving you it's kind of like oh you can fill in the rest here's a quick shot of the bloody ripped open door you can fill in the rest yeah. like she's fighting her way out of the locked bedroom to make this whole plot go to annihilate herself much like in Tarkovsky's film but you can fill in the rest but like I don't want to fill in the rest like film is an experience take me through it show me something visceral um, yeah, the last yeah. thing I wanted to say about Soderbergh's is the visual effects that was the last thing I, point I wanted to make about it um, so we talked earlier just a few minutes ago about the ocean in Tarkovsky's version and how even with, you know, crude uh, chemicals and just altering the frame rate, it's a visual that sticks with you. Color tints, all those, every time it goes to the ocean in Solaris, you feel like you could really swim in it. Whereas in, 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 you know, the 2002 remake, it's this like uh, pink, purple, like very just CGI done with computer fractal effects. And I, I think that the comparing the two really shows us where we've come, I think, in a relationship with visual effects because we're, we're coming out of our like for CGI. And this really struck out to me uh, contrasting these two things because as much as even in, 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 the, in Tarkovsky's version, it was ridiculed how crude those visual effects are but well, today, especially if you compare it with like Kubrick in 2001 or oh, even absolutely. other sci fi Logan's Run or yeah, you know, uh, Planet of the Apes, yeah, all sorts right. of stuff. But Silent I feel, running, all of that, right? Yeah. I feel like Tarkovsky's effects are better than than what was created in 2002. I can reach out and, and grab that ocean, whereas in this, I'm just like, oh, that was just in a computer, like it's, it's kind of so, glossy, kind of slick, kind of bright, and 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 maybe and in 2002, become, yeah. Mm-hmm. You, it's become ubiquitous and it's become yeah. something we kind of just like throw away and don't think about. But if you actually film something now, it really grabs our attention. Well, <laughs> your your uh, harsh take is definitely persuasive. I, I, I don't mind defending the film or, or acknowledging and appreciating it for what it is. But you're right, it's, it's not quite... Um, it'll never have the stature of Tarkovsky's original and it will always, you know, be a bit of a footnote. I believe Uh, it's, it's an interesting take on it. Uh, I guess that's my perspective. Uh, The Jeremy Davies with his whistling and finger pointing, that seems incredibly affected and mannered (laughs) acting of a certain time (laughs) and space. And, and uh, we've kind of moved on past that. And, and I will just have to say that, that, you know, Clooney's gratuitous butt shots and, and, (laughs) you know, it seems like he must've had in his contract. I need to have a few makeout sessions with a hot lead actress (laughs) at this phase of his career, because, you know, and that's the thing. I mean, there is definitely an erotic, undercurrent in the attraction between Hari and Kelvin in Tarkovsky's, but he's not, he's not exploiting it. He's, he's certainly leaving it in the, in the margins there. Um, and, but, and the even more in, is in, importantly, yeah. is we get the romance in Tarkovsky. Yeah, it, exactly. It's, it's the it, it, very rushed through in Soderbergh's right. Eros yeah. in terms of deep feeling rather than just physical, you know, pleasure, which it definitely felt like the whole relationship was, oh, I, I checked her out in a bar. She has immaculate cheekbones. Let's get it on. <laughs> <You know? Yes. laughs> and yes. it's like, well, All can sudden, we take it? 
Yeah. All of a sudden we're married and depressed and then she kills herself. Like, Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hey, it looks like Aaron had to check out. I know we had a bit of an hour uh, time frame scheduled here, so we will not be able to say bye-byes to Aaron. But um, I do want to say I really appreciate both of you guys' insights and uh, furthering the conversation, taking it in some new direction. So uh, we'll wrap it up. Brad, any updates for us as far as things going on in your life that you want to share with our listeners? Um, I don't have really anything new since, uh, you know, the last time we chatted. Sure. Um, but yeah, uh, Ontario is slowly starting to open itself back up from yeah. COVID. So hopefully uh, life will start feeling like normal. Excellent. Well, it's good to hear from you, Brad. And again, appreciate you accompanying me on this journey from uh, Baltimore to Solaris. <laughs> it's awesome. It's awesome. Right. I love it. All right. Well, thanks again. I'll talk to you all soon, and we'll have one more segment coming up shortly. So hang in there, listeners. Thanks again. All right. Well, I am here now for the third segment of our Solaris conversation. It's been a great couple hours already, uh, but we're not done yet. I'm here with uh, Jordan Esso. Jordan, you're like still always going to be my guest number one on this podcast, (laughs) and it has been a while since we've connected. So it's good to hear your voice. Good to talk to you again, and welcome back to Criterion Reflections. Thank you. Likewise, David, it's really good to hear your voice as well. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. This is your season four debut, but for listeners who may not get the reference, Jordan was my first guest on the conversation about Dillinger is Dead back in episode one, season one. And you've been on from time to time as well. And uh, again, good to have you back. And we definitely, you know, made some accommodations to get in, you know, get you on the on the program here, stretch out the schedule a little bit. And I feel like this is going to be a really nice kind of, uh, you know, rounding out of the conversation that we've had with Trevor and Derek and Aaron and Brad. So, uh, again, a wonderful lineup about a really uh, awe-inspiring and thought-provoking film. So, you know, I've already had a lot to say about Solaris. I'm going to kind of go ahead and let you kind of dive right in. Uh, Where do you want to start the conversation? And then uh, we'll just take it from there. So uh, what is your opening bid on Solaris? Well, I did have a chance to listen to the previously recorded segments, and I thought it might be nice if we started off talking about uh, Solaris itself. It seemed like maybe the conversation hadn't quite steered toward analyzing the agenda that is in place here, because while 
not God, Solaris, uh, clearly has an agenda, clearly has um, some kind of plan in mind that's very specific to the people that show up within its sphere of influence. And I kind of wanted to maybe feel you out to see if you had thoughts. Uh, I mm-hmm. have thoughts on, on what it is Solaris wants here. What 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 is it doing here? It's, it's not involuntary. It's not indifferent, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, one of the previous guests, I don't remember which one, somebody said that this is an existentialist film. And I've heard that before about Solaris. I'm not sure that's quite right. Um, so I might start the this part of the conversation off by just maybe puzzling through the ways in which this could be seen as an existentialist story and the ways in which it it probably is not. Like, it might be useful to see it through an existentialist lens, but um, the the absurd world, as defined by existentialism, is the world that is indifferent to anyone's fate, anyone's fortune, um, and that one of the one of the strengths of being an individual is that you sort of, you fight through a world that is basically disordered and um, at the very best ambivalent about your existence. And I think the world here is defined by this agenda that Solaris has. So it's, it's anything but involuntary and indifferent. Like it's very specific to Chris's desires, you know, Chris's sources of shame, um, Chris's sources of, of, of angst and um, his sense of justice, his sense of purpose. Um, it, there's, nothing, there's nothing sort of vague about the circumstances that Solaris is in control of here. Um, it's definitely personal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, also, the pursuit of personal freedom, personal responsibility that's championed by the existentialists, um, certainly does not define Chris's journey. You know, he seems kind of owned by his own past. Um, and he's completely available, right, to the designs of Solaris. Uh, we can we can go into to what degree he, he cooperates with that, but he's available, I think, to this new world and the opportunities and also the, I think, the the things that it forecloses for him. I think he's, he's open to being imprisoned by it. Um, he doesn't really suffer from, I think, a textbook existential crisis where someone is forced to reckon with the meaning or lack of meaning in their own life. Like he said, he does appear to be in a position to question the purpose and meaning of, of Hari's life, but not necessarily his own. I I don't, I don't really see him struggling with a sense of of personal identity. There is a vapidness to him that is sort of interesting. Mm. um, And I think might be a result of post-traumatic stress disorder. But um, he doesn't seem to be deeply introspective, which is totally ironic considering that he's a psychologist or he's supposed to be a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Also, I guess authenticity, um, like the need for truth in existentialism, I think is something that Chris is very clearly not interested in. Um, I think he, he states part of his philosophy to Snout, and he says, the preservation of simple human truths requires mystery. Uh, and I think he goes on to say, like, the mystery of, of, of love. And um, he, I think he likes the fictions that Solaris provides. I think mm-hmm. he enjoys mm-hmm. that the, the envelope of, of, uh, of fiction. Um, and that doesn't feel like an existentialist hero to me either. But what do you think? Uh, is yeah. This, 
is in any ways that I'm missing? Like, is this an existentialist film? I think I think really it depends on how you're using that word existentialist. Uh, your comments indicate somebody who's read the you know the the textbook existentialist you know the classics the Sartre's just Simone de Beauvoir and others Camus who um, really kind of define this discipline I think existential the word or the concept has sort of expanded beyond just those thinkers at least in popular parlance uh, to where these can say existentialist film as a sort of a, a genre of cinema that kind of gets us just to question the nature of our existence, our reality, uh, what makes us tick, and kind of gets us out of the, the, the busyness of the day-to-day illusions and the, the dramas and the, uh, the emotional tugs of, you know, what, what, what kind of normally preoccupies our minds and imaginations. And if you step back from that or sort of deconstruct that a little bit and say, who are we? Why are we here? You know, how does life operate and and what what if anything is the purpose and meaning of it all i think that's kind of small e existentialism if you will right, so that right, might right. be where the the kind of the concepts get a little bit blurred here because there are you know as you were speaking and there's a lot in there so if you want to come back to any thoughts that i might have skipped over or not kind of seized on uh, please feel free to you know let's let's kind of explore that that little uh you know complex of ideas that you, you open it up with. It's really fascinating stuff. I actually kind of had, as you were speaking, kind of this uh, analogy to the matrix, you know, the red pill and the blue pill. And I think in some ways, um, Chris is, you're like you say, preferring the fiction, preferring the illusion, preferring or choosing, if he has that option available, the um, the, the facade, if you will, of, of reuniting with Hari. Even though he knows consciously she's a replica, even though he knows he can't really undo the past, uh, but he can get a certain satisfaction that addresses the underlying pain of that, you know, broken and irrevocably damaged and, and devastated relationship by interacting with somebody who sure looks and sounds and feels a lot like her and even seems to have some sense of their past even though she doesn't know the memories there's something within her something that Solaris has uh, exploited from uh, Chris's own memories of her and has given her somewhat of Hari's personality or at least his idealization of Hari's personality and so that's that's you know definitely a choice I mean Chris tries to you know rid himself of her you know, at the at the first couple of approaches he recognizes the the peril that he's in by uh, getting emotionally entangled with this alien being uh, which may have hostile intentions even though it may not feel like that on the surface but this may be kind of a trap or a lure or something like that but his uh, resistance breaks down pretty quickly and he actually has to sort of depend on Hari, the the second or third Hari, I guess you could say, to be the mature one and, and break off this relationship that really, uh, you know, should not be, is not really meant to be, and isn't really what Chris is at risk of thinking that it is, which is kind of a reunion with his his departed wife. Right. Uh, he, so he's 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 going for it. He's going to go ahead and live in that in that comfort which is I, I can't remember the names but you know in the matrix the original matrix there's that character who decides he's going to go back to 
eating his steak and living in the dream because the reality of what underlies the matrix is not attractive at all so he's going to get lost in that dream again and he's going to feel good about it and that whole red pill blue pill thing has got its own sort of afterlife (laughs) that's gone beyond the matrix and has become part of our political discourse now as well so that's one thought i don't anything you want to say in response to that i've got a few other points i want to jump back to but go ahead yeah well about his willingness to like completely embrace the facade it's interesting that he either failed to understand that about himself this vulnerability or this virtue depending i guess on Mm -hmm. on where you see this behavior fitting into a person's overall mental health uh but he he doesn't see it about himself or at least he he wants others to not identify it because when he was arguing with burton um, in the first Earth sequence, you know, he says something effective like, you know, I, I don't make uh, decisions based on the heart. You know, I don't I don't make decisions based on the impulses of the heart. And and I'm not a poet. And mm-hmm. as it turns out, that's exactly what he is. He is that sensitive creature who is completely willing and compelled to make decisions solely based on the impulses of the heart. So either he needs Burton not to know that about him or he doesn't know that about himself. Um, and this, this, um, uh, this, this poverty of self that, that is Chris Kelvin is, is sort of fascinating, um, to think about. There is a self there, but it's been stripped away, I think, by these, these different, different situations where he's felt abandoned or betrayed by the people that he loved. And so either he's operating on this, you know, survival mode that makes him, I think, kind of come off as somewhat mechanical um or which i think is less likely solaris has done something to him mm-hmm. uh, and, and and maybe stripped him of something um that has made him incapable of of hiding these qualities from himself a- anymore i think it's likely that even though he's a psychologist he's very bad at analyzing himself um probably because he's ashamed uh of, of who he really is and what his actual values are. And I would like to, at some point, I don't think this is the right time, but like, let's look at that word shame. It does come up in the film. Mm-hmm. It does. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, okay. So we've, we've taken a look at Calvin a little bit and, and, and Chris and his motivations or his, 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 his lack of, of willpower, his uh, vulnerability. Uh, you also talked about Solaris and its intentions. And I think that is a fascinating question. Of course, we only really see Solaris interacting most directly with one one human, and that is Chris. We we see little, you know, kind of echoes or indicators of Solaris's response to Snout and Sartorius, but we're really not taken into their personal lives they're really surface characters who play a certain role of perform a function within the story and maybe represent certain types of of humans and and their potential response to a situation like what we see presented in the film but solaris the planet this gigantic you know consciousness this oceanic sentient being this planet encompassing entity um doesn't really mess with humans at least you know what i understand is that the the memory phenomenon the kind of uh, manifestation of, of past memories didn't really begin until humanity uh, launched an aggressive uh, what you might call an attack or at least an experiment 
trying to, um, you know, prod Solaris, prod the planet into some kind of a, a more direct response because uh, the backstory of the film is that research has been going on for years trying to figure out, you know, there's an intelligence here, but how does it operate and, and you know, how can we communicate with it? Because that communication hasn't really happened in a dialogical sense where, one party makes a statement, the other responds, and you go back and forth like like we're doing right now in this conversation. Uh, it's it's more like two different species eyeing each other across a chasm. They can understand that this other creature is thinking, it has a will, has a, you know volition and all of that, but you can't really read each other's minds, and you haven't come up with the language to kind of say are your <laughs> intentions, you know, harmful or or welcoming or benign or or hostile. So yeah, so so that's that's all in there. But I, I I do feel like we have to take seriously the idea that Solaris is responding to, uh, you know, uh, an attack, a, a blast of radiation. Uh, which even if you're a, a giant planet-sized ocean, uh, the last of high-intensity radiation must hurt, <laughs> or at least be I interpreted. Wonder. Yeah, well, you wonder, but but perhaps interpreted by the planet as as a a, a provo- provocation. Uh, now, yeah. does the does Solaris feel emotions? I think that would be way too speculative, and, and we don't have any evidence to say that. But they did something in response to a human initiative that had not been done before. And what is done is, in some ways, not so much, you know, probing their conscience to find their most painful memory and bring it back to life. I, I, you know, you could see it that way, but I think it's more like they're sensing that kind of most vulnerable or um, kind of that core issue of whatever it is that's driving this, human being this individual that seems to have a consciousness uh different from what solaris perhaps could comprehend you know solaris thinks of of has one you know gigantic process humans are atomized into all of these individuals with our own you know personal stories our own kind of closed off consciousness to the sense that we feel like we're all separated from each other and there's rivalry and there's competition and there's confusion and an uncertainty and all of that. Um, so Solaris is also trying to get a grasp on how humans function and what their motives and purposes are and, and, and how they communicate. So yeah, so you've got two sort of different types of intelligence kind of going back and forth. And I did pick some of that up from my reading of Lem's novel where he really extrapolates a lot of those ideas in more depth but i think it's also important to say that tarkovsky didn't really consider himself beholden to that text all that much so i have to be a little bit thoughtful about how does my reading of the book and also of the film you know where do they are are they on the same course or where do they diverge right but but i but i think you know considering solaris is a is a reactive uh being at this point and that um in some ways it functions almost like as a mirror, uh, which is, you know, the name of the new Tarkovsky uh, release that Criterion just put out. And, and mirrors come up in, in other Tarkovsky films as well. Well, they come up in this one and too. And they come up, I exactly. Right. Snout says, you know, man needs a mirror. Right. right. Um, but I think just to, to, to pause and, and address just a few things that you've, mm-hmm. you've already broached, just clarify for me. I'm not entirely certain that the timeline is 
the phenomena started after the radiation was unleashed because Burton's testimony is well before that, correct? So if he witnessed some phenomenological events while he was flying in the atmosphere, including witnessing a recreation, a replica of a child that belonged to, you know, a previous member of the, what if you'd call it, the, the solaristics, the solaristics uh, team, mm-hmm. that's fairly consistent with the types of things that Solaris is doing with Snout and Sartorius and Kelvin. Right. So I'm unclear mm-hmm. exactly if this phenomenon started after the radiation i think the phenomenon that started was where they started appearing on the ship as you know scale-sized human beings who would walk and talk and look you in the eye what what burton saw was during an exploration of the planetary surface and solaris had been putting out these extraordinary structures um you know geometric forms and things of that sort and again i've got a make sure I'm not bleeding the novel too much into this but yeah. I, I think I think it's the invasion of the space station that was the new thing after the, the radiation thing. yeah because so maybe now the implementation of a slightly different strategy but the same kind of yeah. psychological invasion yeah I, I I think yeah you could it's clearly understood that Solaris has the ability the you know, the the grasp of getting into the individual human consciousness and replicating it in some level. But I think Solaris was content to do its own sort of experiments unobserved or, or, you know, I mean, Solaris did not invite Burton down to the, you know, into the clouds above its surface to show him something. Solaris was doing what it was doing. Now, again, maybe Burton's presence there kind of had that, Kind of was it the Heisenberg effect where the observer affects yeah. the uh, the process that he's watching, so there there could be some of that. But uh, yeah, but but you know, again, you bring a human mind into this field of Solaris, and you know, it it throws a certain influence into the into the process, and now you've got replicants of of human you know beings uh, based on the memories of the person who's witnessing yeah. it. Yeah. And you've mentioned this word reactive, which I think I think that's right. Um, there is an like a very fundamental information asymmetry. Then, mm-hmm. whatever exactly Solaris is capable of, we know that it's capable of reading our minds, and maybe it's more able to do this when we're asleep. But clearly, it's able to do it while we're awake as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. To what degree it can also read intention, not just, you know, some kind of fabric of memory that can pull threads from. Um, maybe it also understands, like, when radiation is unleashed on on the ocean, maybe it understands what the intention is. So mm-hmm. um, there may be, you know, a system, a conversation happening where the humanity is really the force operating completely in the dark. We're just guessing. We, we, we have no way of accessing what Solaris is thinking or desiring where it seems to be very clear about what our desires are. Um, so if that's the case, I know this, this starts to step into speculation that isn't really rooted in what we're seeing on screen, but if that is the case, then maybe this 
change in strategy, which we also see, of course, at the end of the film when we uh, the it's described that islands are forming, and then at the very end we see one. That maybe these are maybe these are new strategies deployed solely for the purpose of still trying to reach the same goal, which would be what um, some kind of grand manipulation. It would be one explanation, like it is trying to steer humanity to do one thing in particular, which is either, I guess, abandon or it's if it's a form of entertainment for Solaris, um, kind of sculpt our behavior into something uh, maybe more more dramatic or um, possibly m something that looks like we're vulnerable for invasion. Who knows? Um, another explanation, the one that I'm more interested in would be that there's some morality in play mm -hmm. that 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 pursuing desire pursuing sense of justice pursuing the alleviation of shame um has mor moral value to solaris uh and i and i think it's worth asking the question does solaris get it right i think on first viewing to me it seems the answer is no, mm -hmm. but I think it's more interesting if the answer is yes, and I'll unpack what I mean by that. So, Kelvin uh, has his ex-wife, uh, I'm sorry, his 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 widow appear, and his first reaction is to jettison her, um, her replica out in the spacecraft, as you've already described. This seems like a mishap, like this seems like a, something gone terribly wrong from both perspectives, but if we think about the needs of a person who has been abandoned by uh, a loved one's suicide and the lack of control that that engenders in that person. What several of these dramatic episodes actually supply to Chris is the ability to have control over events that previously were completely out of his control. So he gets to decide when she leaves, when he jettisons her in the rocket. You know, he, he is suddenly the person in charge of that abandonment. Mm -hmm. So it fulfills a kind of desire to, like, to harness control over the uncontrollable. Um, uh, other episodes where she drinks liquid oxygen and, or when she bursts through the metal door when she has to be near him. Um, like, the woman who was willing to leave him through poisoning herself is now the woman who cannot bear to be away from him and that will do any, mm -hmm. any level of, like, self-harm in order to be near him. The sense in which these replicas, like, their lives revolve around the person that they've been birthed from, I think it satisfies a pretty intense desire that we all have to some level, that, like, the people that we love love us to a degree that that um, that is that they require us. Um, and he gets that desire fulfilled. And he gets the desire for her um, revival fulfilled over and over again. You know, she gets resurrected over and over again. The self-harm is kind of like the vehicle through which the resurrection becomes possible. She can't come back to life if she doesn't drink the liquid oxygen. So the violence is necessary, not, a, not only as like a kind of cathartic reliving of the trauma, but as a direct method by which, look, she's okay. Like, she, she isn't poisoned. She isn't dead forever. Like, this, re this constant resurrection cycle, I think, is a, is a really deep-rooted desire that Chris now kind of lives with and now can, like, have completely fulfilled and satisfied by what, what initially struck me as a failure of Solaris, Solaris to give him 
a kind of complete person. The incompleteness of, of Hari on the space station is actually fairly satisfying from that point of view. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, she brings all of the most pleasing attributes of Hari that Chris recalls into his here and now life <laughs> while leaving behind those more difficult or intractable problems you know at least that's i think that's that's the hurry that chris begins to love and um whether or not there is an erotic sexual element to it i mean i think it is crucial that she's young and extremely attractive <laughs> uh not just based on his memories but the sensuality of of the moment um and also her dedication to him uh that that beautiful rapturous zero gravity scene where they're in this really tender embrace uh and also just he has a partner now i mean he's been a single guy uh you know after for 10 af- years for, for all this time unable to reconnect not able to find a new you know spouse or romantic partner of any sort apparently and now here she is he's aged and and there she is in in the prime and the beauty of her youth uh innocence um somewhat well extremely dependent on him so the gratification of being sort of the leader or the you know the the top charge in this relationship at least that illusion of of such uh we learn as we go that the replicant hari has in many ways greater wisdom and emotional maturity uh than chris and she also is wiser and and more substantial in many ways than either snout or sartorius and she kind of upbraids them for their short-sightedness and their pettiness as well so so hari the replicant hari uh is is quite a fascinating creature i mean you know however you slice it whatever you make of uh, her origins or or her her construction you know her her, her neutrinos <laughs> rather than her atomic uh particles and things like that um there's still something very alluring and captivating and i think at this point Maybe Chris has just resigned himself to say, "Hey, this ain't so bad. Let's 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 go for it." I mean, that's a very colloquial kind of flippant way of putting it, but I think you know he's at this place where, and also the idea that of trying to get rid of her, of you know ejecting her into space or or whatever, that really hasn't worked. He realizes, in a certain sense. He's kind of stuck with her, so let's make the best of it. I mean, these are some of the rationalizations. And then, you know, you also said something very interesting at the beginning. Solaris is not God, but it's Solaris is a is an advanced form of intelligence, uh, an advanced form of life. It's kind of revealing in in some significant ways how small and immature humanity is as as a species or as a thinking volitional organism uh however you decide to you know is consciousness a bunch of little micro individuals thinking their thoughts or is there some larger web or network or or uh you know uh frequency that that does unite humanity on more of a singular or comprehensive level than what we might normally experience and these are all interesting matters of philosophy and speculation and i certainly don't mind talking about that type of stuff i think it's all very interesting and i think one of the 
enjoyable things about this film is that it sort of takes you there. It kind of leads your thoughts in that direction without getting really didactic or or explanatory. There's lots of mystery and there's a lot of uh, fruit for uh, reflection and and you know letting letting the ideas play with themselves, but but taking you to sort of this you know deeper, higher, vaster type of outlook on things like consciousness, identity, uh, and, and and where life is headed, and and where it's been, and and where it might be going, as humanity progresses along different lines, technological, psychological, spiritual. You know, so there's there's just lots yeah. of different um, angles to to you know analyze from there. I also wanted to kind of continue the dialogue of that point that uh, I think Brad brought up about the possibility that Chris is always on Solaris, Mm -hmm. even at the beginning of the film. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I have considered this as well, because I do think that there's, there's evidence for it. If you, if you want to find it, I mean, I even think just the way that those underwater reeds are photographed and the way that Chris's niece is zoomed in on in close up, like there's something very pregnant about that whole sequence that feels like there's something potentially nefarious, something unseen, something askew. The rainstorm feels very odd. Chris's reaction to the rainstorm is very odd. The close-up of the teacup. Um, it's all slightly unsettling um, in, in a way that, that, that I think would support a, a interpretation that that's part of Solaris. Um, and even other things like before the close-up of the teacup during the rainstorm where Chris decides to just sort of stand there and, and sort of like mm-hmm. unhelpfully shut his leather jacket. Um, there's an apple on the table that's that's half-eaten. Mm-hmm. Uh, it appears to be the same apple that he dreams his mother is eating later on in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some connective tissues and moments like that as well. I think where I end up on that um, consideration is is that it's not really helpful to the film if he's always on Solaris, I think, I think I don't as a viewer benefit from this interpretation because the story I think flattens a little bit if he's not actually going somewhere where something then happens. And then if you look at the ending, the way in which the world doesn't quite fit together is more extreme. And I have trouble, I think reconciling with, you know, if, if Solaris does have an agenda, it doesn't make sense for it to have kind of been more perfect in its execution of the illusion to start with and then um, allows that illusion to become more, you know, uh, truncated and bifurcated unless somehow the radiation and the encephalogram have changed its ability mm-hmm. to manipulate the human mind. Um but you know, I think, yeah. I, but I don't. Ahead. I don't think that really adds a whole lot. I I, I kind of go with, with the, there. There 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 has to be a journey here. Otherwise, it really is one of yep. those. It was all a dream type of things. And I don't think right, right, Tarkovsky right. is really going to be so exceedingly facile <laughs> to try to voice something like that on us. I mean, it's it's interesting that you can sort of pull that thread out there and and examine it as such. But I don't really think that that's the key to unlocking the mystery here. I agree. I mean, similarly, one could say, what if he's never on Solaris? What if this is just a psychological, you know, and that's also kind of unhelpful and uninteresting. Right, right, right. Yeah. But I would like to ask, 
is it possible at any time during Chris's journey that he is a replica, that he is a uh. manifestation <laughs> or creation of Solaris? Now, yeah. that may not un- that may be more interesting to me to, to talk about. Hmm. Well, I, I guess I'd have to sort of that that is actually one option I haven't really spun through yet there. Um, what I was thinking is that Solaris is in some ways, uh, you know, similar to 2001, kind of like the monolith where it, it does its thing. It it initiates this kind of movement within humanity, but it's also sort of a big sort of a, a magnet or a, a, a gravity well or a, a big egg that's drawing us in as kind of taking humanity to its next stage or something of that sort. You know, 2001 really plays with that idea quite specifically. Like, yeah, yeah we're on to the next stage of the development, uh, the evolution of the human race. Solaris seems to be more based on the resolution of, of interpersonal human dramas. And so, yeah, I think this was kind of recapped in one of the earlier segments. After, Does it is so, it resolution though, David? Like, well, do you feel I think, like Chris's traumas resolved or somehow I think it's to more healthy. I don't think it's resolved so much as it's uh, you know kind of it reaches a bit of a climax in that in that scene where we see uh, the various versions of Hari and Chris's mother moving through the room, uh, the the dog yeah. and all of that, and then the the next scene is Chris and his father, and I think I made the r- remark that you know he's kind of at least for now, put put his issues with his mother and his dead wife to the side, and now he's working on things with his dad. <laughs> so, yeah. again, that, that may be a little bit in the pocket there, but that's, that's kind of where I see, the, you know, how those characters, you know, one set of characters disappear, we're left with Chris and another important character, a fundamental yeah. relationship in his life. And you know, falling and and grasping his father around the waist, uh, this gesture yes, of that's the thing. Re- repentance yeah. and and remorse, and, and again, shame. You know, you, you brought that up. Shame. We can kind of pursue that a little bit. It's this genuflection of a hug, you know, that mm-hmm. he also gives to Hari, and so I'm open to that. Chris has somehow closed the door on some of the trauma with his mother and his wife, but what's I think what's interesting to me is that this hug, this this way of relating to loved ones is very consistent. Like he's still, it's very submissive. It's very wanting. It's very desperate. Um, and it's the same, it's the same behavior he's exhibiting before. I, 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 I struggle with seeing him as any less broken at the end there. In fact, I feel, I feel like what he's basically done is 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 crawled back inside the womb symbolically, mm-hmm. like committed to this committed to this future of sort of daydream and and vision, um, because it does satisfy some of his desires at least more than he has back on planet Earth, and mm-hmm. and dealing with de- dealing with like partial people. Um, it's it doesn't sound very healthy, but I think it's easy to imagine how satisfying that might be. You know, if you only have to reconcile with the versions of people that you have inside your own head, and you never have to grapple with them deviating from that, um, that's that's kind of a much smoother terrain than the real world. Yeah, yeah, because really, again, it's kind of everything's on your own terms. Uh, yeah. There, there may be dialogue, but there's not genuine pushback, and there's not even necessarily unpredictability. Other than, 
maybe you don't even know your own memories or your own impulses or your own wishes, but it's not the the more truly random variable of uh, an autonomous other human being who may or may not agree with you and may actually have their own agenda that they want to pr- impress upon you to meet their own needs. <laughs> you know, that that, yeah. that endless complexity of just one-on-one interpersonal relationship, much less the more complicated networks that we all in, uh, live within. Yeah. Um, to... Uh, may I may I take a minute and, and explain yeah. how I think Chris might be a replica at some point? Sure. Yeah. Let's let's have, yeah. Let's have it. Yeah. Well, so it's, it kind of stems from this possible uh, interpretation that I had of the ending, where instead of Chris deciding to like completely commit to life with Solaris, um, what if Solaris has just basically taken what it's learned from these people and now it's sort of kind of playing its own games with the information i mean if solaris is an investigator primarily like has a scientific approach to trying to figure out how humanity ticks um like any scientist what you do you you take the data and you then work with the data um so it's possible that it has just recreated things that it it gleaned from being inside Chris's head and that the Chris at the end of the film is, is just a, a replica at just a piece of data mm. um, with this, whether it's neutrinos or not, like this is the islands that it's forming. Isn't necessarily uh, a defensive mechanism or uh, a change in course so much as like one would assume the additional information that they, that Solaris received from the encephalogram would have supplied it only with like, a huge amount of more data yeah um interesting and yeah th- yeah that maybe either chris went back to earth or maybe he died of whatever fever he was suffering from or 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 maybe it's even possible to consider at any point snout or sartorius or chris it, it, anything on the space station could have been a replica yeah i my thought just now as you're describing that is like maybe solaris is like creating a lab <laughs> you know like they've yeah. they've downloaded the contents of of chris kelvin's mind through the ence- encephalogram both his unconscious state through their work while he was sleeping and dreaming and now this very intentional you know info dump <laughs> when they when they take his brain waves send them into solar so now they've got a pretty well-rounded picture of a human I, the physics are still not right it's raining inside the uh, right. father doesn't notice or react when he's getting water poured on him um and so and and even the you know you know the pond is now kind of frozen uh or it's a harder surface than liquid water uh but maybe they they're just gonna go ahead and set up a little experiment uh like what we might do with rats in a maze or or or, yeah. or, or primates in a in a, a little uh you know a, a pen of some sort some kind of a you know a, it's a it's a, a welcoming environment i mean when, when we build zoos or even you know open air wildlife parks you know there's fences there's borders there's there's all kinds of security to make sure that the animals don't break loose but we're going to try to give them a uh, a pleasant environment and and give them at least a chance to s- simulate most of their natural activities. They may not have the full range that they're used to in the wild, but you know we'll give them acres and we'll give them animals to chase down. I mean, so yeah, yeah. So maybe that's that's where Solaris is at. They're they're conducting their own studies, and this what we see at the end is is again, yeah, their manifestation of of Chris Kelvin 
maybe they've concluded the experiment with uh, his wife and mother or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I guess I still veer towards the idea that Chris is choosing to stay on Solaris. Uh, if if I have to put my money down <laughs> and yeah. place my bet, that's where I'm going because we've followed that character throughout the film, and there is this kind of cyclical journey that he's on. But again, this is a this is a, a wonderful work of art, and I think that's what makes it a film that's not just worth watching, uh, but rewatching and and thinking about and and discussing at various stages of our own lives as maybe new insights. Um, you know, approach us and arrest us as we relate our own experiences to what we see happening in the film. Yeah. I mean, full disclosure, I'm with you. I, I, feel, I feel like <laughs> that, that is the explanation. Yeah. But I think it's a fun thought experiment. It is. Think, yeah, like, yeah. well, you know, what if what if this was another way to look at it? Mm-hmm. I do think at the very least in that dream he has uh, with, with his mother uh, and she washes away his wounds on his arm mm-hmm. yeah. that he's at least expressing the desire to be a replicant at that point because that is exactly what happened with yeah. with Hari's wounds. Yeah, as well as a as a child, you know, a child who's taken care of by his mother in that very needy dependent way. I mean, he could have washed yes. his own arm off. He could have been a big boy and just dealt with it, yeah. but there's something comforting about a mother's touch and about just sort of being in that passive state and allowing your loving de- dedicated mother to you know, take care of Do you. Do it for you. Yeah. 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 And he isn't a big boy. I mean, Chris is, there's something <laughs> infantile about him. You know, <laughs> really is. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's pathetic. I just no. think, you know, there's, he, there's a woundedness there that I think is, is very in need of that kind of maternal energy. Well, and I think let's face, I mean, almost all of us have that aspect to ourselves. A lot of us can project strength and independence and fortitude and self-reliance and all of that and 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 we do that to a large part you know throughout our lives so i'm not saying everybody who's self-reliant is faking it but we we all have those vulnerabilities and under this incredibly stressful circumstances of interplanetary intergalactic or space travel or whatever it is and we never really get into the mechanics of how he gets from earth to wherever but but still the isolation the loneliness uh being stuck on this dump of a space station (laughs) with two very hostile and unlikable and undependable uh roommates so to speak uh with 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 the one friend you had lying dead there by suicide and think how much suicide has surrounded chris in his life i mean Hari has basically killed herself three times now, <laughs> you know, yeah. by submitting to the encephalogram, the the annihilator, as well as drinking the liquid oxygen, and and she did the last one, allowing Sartorius to to blow her away, uh, fully cognizant of the fact that this was the last time that that Chris would be able to see her, and she did it while he was away, while he was sleeping and and out of commission, or, and recovering. So yeah. you know that's. That's pretty cold in a certain sense. I mean, Chris has got to be thinking, what is it about me? You know, <laughs> Why, what, what's yeah. going on here? Yeah. yeah. Hey, before we get too far, far into the time, because I, I think we do need to start thinking about wrapping up. You know, you have a, a history as an art critic and an artist yourself. And I just wanted to get some of your thoughts about Tarkovsky, 
the artist. And, and, and I specifically was thinking about this was uh, watching one of the supplements on the new mirror Blu-ray that just came out. It's a, it's a documentary made by his son, also named Andre Tarkovsky. And really uh, there's a lot of recording of Tar- of the senior Tarkovsky, the director speaking about his thoughts on art and his incredibly, you know, sort of high priestly dedication to art as a concept and as a central force in life. And, you know, he literally gave it all. I mean, you know, Stalker, you could say, was responsible for his early demise and his commitment to creating art under very difficult circumstances in the USSR. He eventually had to defect. Uh, And he had, he imbued the concept of art with, you know, very, you know, highly spiritual um, implications and and gravity. And I just kind of wanted to get some of your, your, thoughts about about that and, and Tarkovsky the artist oh sure yeah I mean Tarkovsky is if not my favorite film director certainly you know in the in the top two or three and it's because of that level of commitment to his own vision like this this cinema that is an invitation to discover the world i mean really like the the secret magic of the world that isn't so secret if you just pay attention to it you know this mm-hmm. this densely electric this this constantly flowing inner working of things that if you just if you just allow yourself to kind of quietly invade you know the silence and discover its depth um and i think we all know how to do that um but we 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 forget because society trains us to uh, to be distracted and to focus on trivial things that hurry us. Um, and sometimes it takes something like a Tarkovsky film to, to kind of calm down those, those, uh, those very damaging instincts and just use all of your senses, you know, use your imagination, apply your spirit, um, and it's really hard work. I mean, Mm -hmm. making art, um, that doesn't detour from your vision it's you'd think we would progress as a society and learn from these challenges instead you wouldn't believe like the arguments that you get into with um you know otherwise well-intentioned collaborators or well-intentioned critics or well-intentioned um facilitators of, of every respect um uh, whether this is, you know, if you're making a film, that this could be producers, this could be your fellow uh, cast members, this could be the editor, who will argue for a more commercial solution for something that doesn't have a problem, you know, holding that shot longer, you know, um, a- allowing the atmosphere to kind of mature on its own, um, not invading the moment with this oppressive score in order to be more entertaining, um, not going for that um, dramatic emotional punch because you're worried that you're going to lose your audience's attention if you don't give them something sort of expected or um, uh, that, that, that has a describable dramatic up and down algorithm um it is it's very difficult to know and trust the artistic instinct to provide that that depth of silence and not allow any of these very convincing arguments to do the opposite to detour you away from that so i mean not only is his work 
very powerful in all of these ways, but just the human being behind it that wouldn't concede. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure there were concessions. I'm sure there were, you know, I think the discussion discussion eventually at, at some point talked about that making a science fiction film at all was a kind of concession, but there's so much that isn't conceded artistically uh, that it's, it's really a joy. It's really a joy to, to watch the work unfold. Yeah. And, and you're right that just that, that through line of the dedication and, and, and really the, the incredible courage that it takes to produce art and maintain that, that high level of, of, um, you know, authenticity uh, of realizing this vision and of, you know, respecting the viewers who are able to track with him and say, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to take you on a five minute freeway ride. I'm going to, I'm going to let this shot of lingering, you know, seaweed just flow for a while. I'm, I'm, you're right. I'm not going to punctuate it with dramatic music. I mean, think of all just the, the narrative exposition in the, uh, you know, the cerebral head trip films of today. I think of like a Christopher Nolan where it's like, you know, this movie would be about 75% better if most of the characters just shut up, <laughs> you know, yeah, <laughs> and right. just let us watch the spectacular visuals you've put together and allow us to ponder and speculate back and forth over well, how does this time travel thing work or reversal or whatever uh, same with inception or whatever i mean not to get off on that tangent but it really would be nice to see some of the technically brilliant filmmakers of today who are trying to produce you know art for you know mass audiences just be a little more brave to just let the mystery stand without having to fill it in now you know and respect their intelligence as you said yeah yeah absolutely that you know even if we get it wrong we can still have fun trying to figure it out and and keeping that aura of mystery and ineffability uh, present rather than here's how you're supposed to understand this and we'll just throw in one or two little twists to keep you guessing but yeah. Anyways, I, I, I yeah, just really, the really dangerous. Mm-hmm. I think not to not to speak about this too seriously, but I think the really dangerous thing about making art that way is is not just that you end up with bad art, but when you play to the lowest common denominator and you don't allow your audience to exercise its more sophisticated sense organs uh artistically speaking those those abilities to perceive beyond the obvious become weaker Mm -hmm. and as a society we we i think we reach a um more pathetic peter principle with every (laughs) every five years that lapses where we're not asking more of our audience Mm -hmm. yeah and i and i honestly say I, i i do feel like uh, I'll speak for American culture. I think we are a culture in decline. I mean, you know, that's a pessimistic and kind of a, a downer thing to say, especially as we approach maybe the end of the episode. I'm not hopeless, but I feel like culturally we've got some hard times ahead and some tough reckonings that are that are going to be uh, sown by all the reaping of, of garbage and commercialism and, and cheap exploitation that... Uh, has gone into so much of our, our popular entertainment, and and that's 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 spilled over into our politics and just our discourse on so many levels. So, I'm I'm not you know like down on the future of humanity altogether, but I feel like there's a lot of things that are are not functioning the way they could or they ought, just in terms of yeah. how people regard and appreciate 
the lives we're living right now and in this world. So, yeah. And the language that we use to yeah. communicate with each other. I mean, yeah. like the, the base, not, not only, I don't mean like how toxic and like um, confrontational it is, but like the reduction of vocabulary yeah, Just the, yeah. Uh, the 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 expectation that that we can talk in person over text over email on a phone uh it with the same like lack of curiosity about finding the right words to explore the right ideas with nuance and with the possibility of surprising yourself we just speak in such a boring banal way <laughs> and it's getting yeah. worse and yeah, worse yeah yeah and then the critical thinking skills kind of corroding as at the same time so yeah well all right jordan well right. you and i we can talk we can talk and i think we can <laughs> we can at least try to elevate the discourse a, a little bit you know push against the tide right <laughs> <laughs> well let's let's yeah. let's um let's turn to chris here uh, one last yeah. time yeah please um, yeah. The, the, he says <laughs> he says that the, okay so the third member of the of the crew that that has committed suicide before he arrived um in his analysis which he doesn't apply his psychological skills um, very vehemently <laughs> during the course of this film right but he eventually settles on this thing that Jabarian didn't die of fear he died of shame mm -hmm. and then he says shame the feeling that will save mankind so when yes. we're talking about saving mankind what does he mean by this do you think why will shame save mankind I think he sees shame as the factor that kind of puts us in check, that stops us from fully committing to our arrogance, our pride, our grandiosity. Um, shame is a recognition that, well, no, guilt is a recognition that I've done something wrong and I need to make amends. Shame is when it becomes internalized and kind of begins to undermine or or call into question our fundamental dignity. Uh, there's something wrong with me, or there's something irrevocably, irreparably evil or broken about perhaps myself, perhaps about humanity in general. And I think shame does become pretty quickly uh, toxic and debilitating. So this quote that shame... Uh, will be is the feeling that will save mankind. I I don't agree with that. I think that's a, yeah. that's a that's a a statement of a person who's you know fundamentally mixed up and and has yeah. has um I, I maybe maybe he's looking to some other source to remove that feeling, but I don't know that he's going to find it. I know. Yeah, I think it's. Uh completely the conclusion of someone who has given up mm -hmm. in a way or mm -hmm. has become very comfortable with their own self-loathing self-loathing yeah. right and is projecting um, it onto everybody else too right and yet he doesn't seem to be contemplating suicide at any point right so it's interesting that he defends Jabarian's move here you know the exit strategy that 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 um, like you said so many people around him compulsively keep turning to he is someone who suffers from a lot of shame but he doesn't see that as an option for himself right. unless you see unless you see this kind of this willingness to give into the facade a kind of suicide which i think the existentialists actually would they'd call that philosophical suicide 
Mm, okay, because he's surrendered to the illusion rather than, yes. um, yeah, you know, owning up to the reality of his predicament and not seeking some kind of solace in a, a charade of, you know, apparent forgiveness or some ritual ceremonial type of thing, and not strong enough to face reality. Mm, mm. Yeah, poor Chris. <laughs> yeah well, well and 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 really you know um I, I i do wonder where tarkovsky's own journey uh through art and his own speculations on on faith and purpose you know where they brought him after this film i mean this this was a i guess you have to call this early tarkovsky i mean this was his third feature after you know quite a few years in development uh, but i think you know he he went on to make several other really powerful movies after this and you know well, lord willing we'll get to that in this podcast somewhere down the line um but yeah let's let's just kind of have one last wrap-up of thoughts any any final observations what did you think about the space station just as a set design and all of that it was interesting seeing it i saw this film before i saw 2001 mm-hmm. um and I hadn't revisited this film in a while, but I'd seen 2001 again fairly recently. And so looking at the set design with an eye towards, you know, this being such a dramatically cheaper film to make. I'm also working on a couple of films myself, mm -hmm. and I have to say... I'm pretty impressed by the set design in Solaris it is. because it it's... still looks like it took quite a bit of money and quite a bit of thought. And I think it's it totally serves the story. I don't need any more yeah. than this no. from Solaris. I don't feel at all like I've been shortchanged. Um, the, the, the structure and texture of the walls looking kind of like the padding in a mental institution, mm -hmm. which is the same, uh, <laughs> yeah. same structure of the blankets that they have, um, I think sort of struck me as an interesting choice. Uh, the costuming is very radical. Um, yeah, I, I, I kind of think it struck the right note, though. It doesn't stand in the way of anything, but it definitely communicates. You're in the future. You're in a place that has its own set of rules. And you're in a place that has been slightly forgotten and um not maintained properly yeah it's it's neglected it's run down it's shabby uh but that's kind of how human environments wind up <laughs> when there's not a lot of energy put into them and you know it's a it's a huge place with just a very small crew at this point but yeah i, I did love the way that he cobbled together all of these you know this technological stuff, all this hardware, all of these bits. I mean, just the ingenuity uh, of, of with fairly meager resources uh, to create this world. You know, it's 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 a pretty impressive achievement uh, just on the, you know, the logistics and the fact that he got this thing done. And I think he left us a, a classic movie that that will be you know watched and regarded and thought about and talked about for for many years to come. So for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up our Solaris conversation. But I do want to spend a little bit of time catching up. Uh, you have recently relocated. I was, you know, I'm seeing on my little Facebook memories there. Two years ago, I was out in California. There's a few pictures of you and me when I was out at your place where yeah. it's your former home now. You're up in Oregon. So tell us just a little bit of what, what you've been up to, Jordan. Oh, it was a, it was a lot to get everything in order to make this move possible. But we are now full-time up in Waldport, Oregon, which is central Oregon on the coast. And uh, right now it's, it's kind of exciting. I've sat down at my, uh, my desk, my art table 
for the first time to do something other than unpack a box. <laughs> so <laughs> I got my microphone out. I got my computer set up. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking out my window right now. There's this patch of forest in between us and the highway. And, um, you know, it's glorious. It's just, it's, it's a much more elemental, much more healthy looking environment than where we were in California. We were there in California. I was in California for most of my life. So I've not a lot of bad things to say about it, but I, I am grateful to be, you know, within half a mile of the ocean. Mm. I, I went on my first jog two nights ago, three nights ago as a, as a local. And I, I, I jogged in a fog bank that obscured the houses, but opened up enough that the sun was this, you know, glorious refracting bright orb. And the, the, the fog bank was just making all the waves look kind of silver and translucent. It looked very much like Solaris. Very taken with it. <laughs> uh, and so that's, you know, now a part of my regular routine is I, I get some exercise running on the beach. It, it really, it's, it's a dream come true. Oh, that sounds really fantastic. I'll have to set up a trip to visit you in Oregon now. It sounds like yeah. a really wonderful place to land and congratulations on making the move. Um, yeah. Uh, anything else you want to update us on? You said you're working on a couple of movies. I know a lot of times you have to kind of keep the details on the down low there. But, uh, you know, what else have you been up to? I, I, obviously, moving is a p- pretty huge project. But any other updates? Yeah, the moving does kind of require some focused attention for a while. But um, the two films are almost one project. The mm-hmm. first one is have a running time about 45 minutes. And it is a um, a film about a, a married couple that are decoupling, and it 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 takes a lot of its cues from the pandemic. Um, it's mostly silent. I mean, it does have does have a score and does have you know native sound, but there's no dialogue. Mm. And the the time that we all had was so satisfying that we decided to jump into a sequel. Mm. So. Um, mm. We said, let's make another film, like, right away, before we even finish this one. And so I proposed that we actually just continue the story of these two people because I felt like we had more to say about them. And so that film is um, in pre-production, and the other one is in post-production. So we're working on getting the score finalized for the first one. We should be getting a new draft of the score from the composer very soon. Um, But we have picture lock. And uh, I have I wrote both films. I'm uh, one of the leads in both of them, and then I'm co-directing and co-producing. So it's a lot of different yeah. various hats to to juggle. But it's been really artistically quite satisfying. And we don't quite know where they will premiere. We're still sort of sussing out what the options are. And uh, as soon as I know, uh, I'll let you know. Well, if all else fails, maybe we can stream it through CriterionCast.com or something. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Hold that in my back pocket. (laughs) Yeah, we'll we'll give you at least one outlet there. Well, that's very exciting, Jordan. Very uh, eager to see whenever that opportunity arises, but really also happy that uh, you've got those projects moving along and that you're making some progress in that phase of your career. So congratulations on that as well. Uh, This has been a delightful conversation, very... uh, suitable uh, conclusion to this what's turning into a pretty epic <laughs> episode about Tarkovsky almost as long as one of his films maybe a little bit longer than this one maybe even. a little <laughs> longer yeah thank you for for making those arrangements to to oh, include yeah. me it's been a blast
well, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled that we were able to pull this off. It's been a little bit of a, uh, you know, a project for me just getting, getting these segments uh, up and together. And I have definitely slowed down the pace of podcasting a little bit. It's summer, it's in Michigan, and I'm just enjoying the outside time and not sitting in front of computers a whole lot these days. But I will be happily getting this episode out there. And the next one we're going to talk about uh, here on Criterion Reflections is Bruce Lee's Fist of Fury. Uh, It might be a while. I've got another backlog of reviews I've got to do. I've been getting some uh, preview discs from Kino Lorber, and I've just got to focus on watching and and summarizing those. I've been doing a lot of stuff on TikTok, so if you really want to follow my movie watching and commentary vibe that's where i'm posting updates almost every day over there so i invite listeners to find me i'm dlb d-e-e dot e-l-l dot b-e-e links in the show notes and all of that uh so jordan any final thoughts before we wrap it up well technically you can find me at jordan so on instagram and twitter and facebook but i've been pretty silent on social media so um probably want to get a little closer with these projects i will hop back on there fantastic well we look forward to that so thanks for joining me again and uh kind of retro throwback thanks to aaron and brad and trevor and derek uh you guys made a great episode so it's been a lot of fun talking about this great movie we'll be wrapping it up for now and uh see you back on planet earth very soon bye-bye <laughs>